Book One of The Lost Art of Reading by Gerald Stanley Lee. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Tabler. The Lost Art of Reading by Gerald Stanley Lee. Book One interferences with the reading habit the first interference civilization one dust i see the ships said the eavesdropper as he stole round the world to me on a dozen sides of the world i hear them fighting with the sea and what do you see on the ships i said figures of men and women thousands of figures of men and women and what are they doing they are walking fiercely he said some of them walking fiercely up and down the decks before the sea why said i because they cannot stand still and look at it others are reading in chairs because they cannot sit still and look at it and there are some said the eavesdropper with roofs of boards above their heads to protect them from wonder down in the hold playing cards there was silence what are you seeing now i said trains he said a globe full of trains they are on a dozen sides of it they are clinging to the crusts of it mountains rivers prairies some in the light and some in the dark creeping through space and what do you see in the trains miles of faces and the faces they are pushing on the trains what are you seeing now i said cities he said streets of cities miles of cities and what do you see in the streets of cities men women and smoke what are the men and women doing hurrying he said where i said god knows two dust the population of the civilized world today may be divided into two classes millionaires and those who would like to be millionaires the rest are artists poets tramps and babies and do not count poets and artists do not count until after they are dead tramps are put in prison babies are expected to get over it a few summers a few more winters with short skirts or with down on their chins they shall be seen burrowing with the rest of us one almost wonders sometimes why it is that the sun keeps on year after year and day after day turning the globe around and around heating it and lighting it and keeping things growing on it when after all when all is said and done crowded with wonder and with things to live with as it is it is a comparatively empty globe no one seems to be using it very much or paying very much attention to it or getting very much out of it there are never more than a very few men on it at a time who can be said to be really living on it they are engaged in getting a living and in hoping that they are going to live some time they are also going to read some time when one thinks of the wasted sunrises and sunsets the great free show of heaven the door open every night of the little groups of people straggling into it of the swarms of people hurrying back and forth before it jostling their getting a living lives up and down before it not knowing it is there one wonders why it is there why does it not fall upon us or its lights go suddenly out upon us 
we stand in the days and the nights like stalls suns flying over our heads stars singing through space beneath our feet but we do not see every man's head in a pocket boring for his living in a pocket or being bored for his living in a pocket what should he see true we are not without a philosophy for this to look over the edge of our stalls with getting a living is living we say we whisper it to ourselves in our pockets then we try to get it when we get it we try to believe it and when we get it we do not believe anything let every man under the walled-in heaven the iron heaven speak for his own soul no one else shall speak for him we only know what we know each of us in our pockets the great books tell us it has not always been an iron heaven or a walled-in heaven but into the faces of the flocks of the children that come to us year after year we look wondering they shall not do anything but burrowing most of them our very ideals are burrowings so are our books religion burrows it barely so much as looks at heaven why should a civilized man a man who can burrow look at heaven it is the glimmering boundary line where burrowing leaves off time enough in the meantime the shovel let the stars wheel do men look at stars with shovels the faults of our prevailing habits of reading are the faults of our lives any criticism of our habit of reading books today which actually or even apparently confines itself to the point is unsatisfactory a criticism of the reading habit of a nation is a criticism of its civilization to sketch a scheme of defense for the modern human brain from the kindergarten stage to commencement day is merely a way of bringing the subject of education up and dropping it where it begins even if the youth of the period as a live human reading being on the principles to be laid down in the following pages is so fortunate as to succeed in escaping the dangers and temptations of the home even if he contrives to run the gauntlet of the grammar school and the academy even if in the last longest and hardest pull of all he succeeds in keeping a spontaneous habit with books in spite of a college course the story is not over civilization waits for him all enfolding all instructing civilization and he stands face to face book in hand with his last chance three dust to dust whatever else may be said of our present civilization one must needs go very far in it to see abraham at his tent's door waiting for angels and yet from the point of view of reading and from the point of view of the books that the world has always called worth reading if ever there was a type of gentleman and scholar in history and a christian and a man of possibilities founder and ruler of civilization it is this same man abraham at his tent's door waiting for angels have we any like him now peradventure there shall be ten where is the man who feels that he is free today to sit upon his steps and have a quiet think unless there floats across the spirit of his dream the sweet and reassuring sound of someone making a tremendous din around the next corner a band or a new literary journal or a historical novel or a special correspondent or a new club or church or something until he feels that the world is being conducted for him that things are tolerably not at rest 
where shall one find in civilization in this present moment a man who is ready to stop and look about him to take a spell at last at being a reasonable contemplative or even marriageable being the essential unmarriageableness of the modern man and the unreadableness of his books are two facts that work very well together when emerson asked bronson alcott what have you done in the world what have you written the answer of alcott if pythagoras came to concord whom would he ask to see was a diagnosis of the whole nineteenth century it was a very short sentence but it was a sentence to found a college with to build libraries out of to make a whole modern world read to fill the weary and heedless heart of it for a thousand years we have plenty of provision made for books in civilization but if civilization should ever have another man in the course of time who knows how to read a book it would not know what to do with him no provision is made for such a man we have nothing but libraries monstrous libraries to lose him in the books take up nearly all the room in civilization and civilization takes up the rest the man is not allowed to peep in civilization he is too busy being ordered around by it to know that he would like to it does not occur to him that he ought to be allowed time in it to know who he is before he dies the typical civilized man is an exhausted spiritually hysterical man because he has no idea of what it means or can be made to mean to a man to face calmly with his whole life a great book a few minutes every day to rest back on his ideals in it to keep office hours with his own soul the practical value of a book is the inherent energy and quietness of the ideals in it the immemorial way ideals have have always had of working themselves out in a man of doing the work of the man and of doing their own work at the same time inasmuch as ideals are what all real books are written with and read with and inasmuch as ideals are the only way a human being has of resting in this present world it would be hard to think of any book that would be more to the point in this modern civilization than a book that shall tell men how to read to live how to touch their ideals swiftly every day any book that should do this for us would touch life at more points and flow out on men's minds in more directions than any other that could be conceived it would contribute as the june day or as the night for sleep to all men's lives to all of the problems of all of the world at once it would be a night-latch to the ideal whatever the remedy may be said to be one thing is certainly true with regard to our reading habits in modern times men who are habitually shamefaced or absent-minded before the ideal that is before the actual nature of things cannot expect to be real readers of books they can only be what most men are nowadays merely busy and effeminate running and reading sort of men rushing about propping up the universe men who cannot trust the ideal the nature of things and who think they can do better are naturally kept very busy and as they take no time to rest back on their ideals they are naturally very tired the result stares at us on every hand whether in religion art education or public affairs we do not stop to find our ideals for the problems that confront us we do not even look at them 
our modern problems are all jerichos to us most of them paper ones we arrange symposiums and processions around them and shout at them and march up and down before them modern prophecy is the blare of the trumpet modern thought is a crowd hurrying to and fro civilization is the dust we scuffle in each other's eyes when the peace and strength of spirit with which the walls of temples are builded no longer dwell in them the stones crumble temples are built of eon gathered and eon rested stones infinite nights and days are wrought in them and leisure and splendor wait upon them and visits of suns and stars and when leisure and splendor are no more in human beings lives and visits of suns and stars are as though they were not in our civilization the walls of it shall crumble upon us if fullness and leisure and power of living are no more with us nothing shall save us walls of encyclopedias not even walls of bibles shall save us nor miles of carnegie library empty and hasty and cowardly living does not get itself protected from the laws of nature by tons of paper and ink the only way out for civilization is through the practical men in it men who grapple daily with ideals who keep office hours with their souls who keep hold of life with books who take enough time out of hurrying civilization along to live civilization has been long in building and its splendor still hangs over us but parthenons do not stand when parthenons are no longer being lived in greek men's souls only those who have coliseums in them can keep coliseums around them the ideal has its own way it has it with the very stones it was an ideal a vanished ideal that made a moonlight scene for tourists out of the coliseum out of the dead soul of rome four ashes there seem to be but two fundamental characteristic sensibilities left alive in the typical callously civilized man one of these sensibilities is the sense of motion and the other is the sense of mass if he cannot be appealed to through one of these senses it is of little use to appeal to him at all in proportion as he is civilized the civilized man can be depended on for two things he can always be touched by a hurry of any kind and he never fails to be moved by a crowd if he can have hurry and crowd together he is capable of almost anything these two sensibilities the sense of motion and the sense of mass are all that is left of the original lusty tasting and seeing and feeling human being who took possession of the earth and even in the case of comparatively rudimentary and somewhat stupid senses like these the sense of motion with the average civilized man is so blunt that he needs to be rushed along at seventy miles an hour to have the feeling that he is moving and his sense of mass is so degenerate that he needs to live with hundreds of thousands of people next door to know that he is not alone he is seen in his most natural state this civilized being with most of his civilization around him in the seat of an elevated railway train with a crowded newspaper before his eyes and another crowded newspaper in his lap and crowds of people reading crowded newspapers standing round him in the aisles 
but he can never be said to be seen at his best in a spectacle like this until it is rushing over the sky of the street puffing through space in which delectable pell-mell and carnival of hurry hiss in front of it shriek under it and dust behind it he finds to all appearances at least the meaning of the present world and the hope of the next hurry and crowd have kissed each other and his soul rests if abraham sitting in his tent door waiting for angels had been visited by a spectacle like this and invited to live in it all his days would he not have climbed into it cheerfully enough asks the modern man living in a tent would have been out of the question and waiting for angels waiting for anything in fact forever impossible whatever else may be said of abraham his waiting for angels was the making of him and the making of all that is good in what has followed since the man who hangs on a strap up in the morning and down at night hurrying between the crowd he sleeps with and the crowd he works with to the crowd that hurries no more even this man such as he with all his civilization roaring about him would have been impossible if abraham in the stately and quiet days had not waited at his tent door for angels to begin a civilization with or if he had been the kind of abraham that expected that angels would come hurrying and scurrying after one in a spectacle like this what has a man says blank in his angels of the nineteenth century what has a man who consents to be a knee-bumping elbow-jamming foothold struggling strap-hanger an abject commuter all his days for no better reason than that he is not well enough to keep still and that there is not enough of him to be alone to do with angels or to do with anything except to get done with it as fast as he can so say we all hanging on straps to say it swaying and swinging to oblivion is there no power says blank in heaven above or earth beneath that will help us stop if a civilization is founded on two senses the sense of motion and the sense of mass one need not go far to find the essential traits of its literature and its daily reading habit there are two things that such a civilization makes sure of in all its concerns hurry and crowd hence the spectacle before us the literary rush and mobs of books five the literary rush the present writer being occasionally addicted like the reader of this book to a seemly desire to have the opinions of someone besides the author represented has fallen into the way of having interviews held with himself from time to time which are afterwards published at his own request these interviews appear in the public prints as being between a mysterious person and the presiding genius of the state of massachusetts the author can only earnestly hope in thus generously providing for an opposing point of view in taking as it were the words of the enemy upon his lips he will lose the sympathy of the reader the mysterious person is in colloquy with the presiding genius of the state of massachusetts as the pgs of m lives relentlessly at his elbow dogs every day of his life it is hoped that the reader will make allowance for a certain impatient familiarity in the tone of the mysterious person towards so considerable a personage as the presiding genius of the state of massachusetts which we can only profoundly regret the mysterious person there is no escaping from it reading madness is a thing we all are breathing in to-day whether we will or no 
and it is not only in the air but it is worse than in the air it is underneath the foundations of the things which we live and on which we stand it has infected the very character of the natural world and the movement of the planets and the world of the globe beneath our feet without its little paling of books about it there is hardly a thing that is left in this modern world a man can go to for its own sake except by stepping off the globe perhaps now and then practically arranging a world of one's own and breaking with one's kind the life that a man must live to-day can only be described as a kind of eternal parting with himself there is getting to be no possible way for a man to preserve his five spiritual senses even his five physical ones and be a member in good and regular standing of civilization at the same time if civilization and human nature are to continue to be allowed to exist together there is but one way out apparently an extra planet for all of us one for a man to live on and the other for him to be civilized on p g s of m but as long as we who are the men and women of the world are willing to continue our present fashion of giving up living in order to get a living p g s of m but as long as we who are the men and women of the world are willing to continue our present fashion of giving up living in order to get a living one planet will never be large enough for us if we can only get our living in one place and have it to live with in another the question is to whom does this present planet belong the people who spend their days in living into it and enjoying it or the people who never take time to notice the planet who do not seem to know that they are living on a planet at all p g s of m but i may not be very well informed on very many things but i am very sure of one of them said the mysterious person and that is that this present planet this one we are living on now belongs by all that is fair and just to those who are really living on it and that it should be saved and kept as sacred and protected a place a place where men shall be able to belong to the taste and color and meaning of things and to god and to themselves if people want another planet a planet to belong to society on let them go out and get it look at our literature current literature it is a mere headlong helpless literary rush from beginning to end all that one can extract from it is getting to be a kind of general sound of going we began gently enough we began with the annual we had poor richard's almanac then we had the quarterly a monthly was reasonable enough in course of time so we had monthlies then the semi-monthly came to ease our literary nerves and now the weekly magazine stumbles wrapped and wistful on the heels of men of genius it makes contracts with prophecy unborn poems are sold in the open market the latest thoughts that thinkers have the trend of the thoughts they are going to have the public makes demand for these it gets them then it cries more more where is the writer who does not think with the printing press hot upon his track and the sound of the pulp mill making paper for his poems and the buzz of editors instead of the music of the spheres think of the destruction to american forests the bare and glaring hills that face us day and night all for a literature like this thousands of square miles of it spread before our faces morning after morning week after week through all this broad and glorious land seventy million souls brothers of yours and mine walking through prairies of pictures sunday after sunday flickered at by headlines deceived by adjectives each with his long day's work 
column after column, sentence after sentence, plodding, plodding, plodding down to my geography may be wrong, the general direction is right. But don't you believe in newspapers? Why, yes, in the abstract, news, papers. But we do not have any news nowadays. It is not news to know a thing before it's happened, nor is it news to know what might happen, or why it might happen, or why it might not happen. To be told that it doesn't make any difference whether it happens at all would be news, perhaps to many people, such news as there is, but it is hardly worth while to pay three cents to be sure of that. An intelligent man can be sure of it for nothing. He has been sure of it every morning for years. It's the gist of most of the newspapers he reads. From the point of view of what can be called truly vital information, in any larger sense, the only news a daily paper has is the date at the top of the page. If a man once makes sure of that, if he feels from the bottom of his heart what really good news it is that one more day is come in a world as beautiful as this, the rest of it, P.G.S. of M., but the rest of it is true. The rest of it, if it's true, is hardly worth knowing. And if it's worth knowing, it can be found better in books. And if it's not true, every man his own liar is my motto. He might as well have the pleasure of it, and he knows how much to believe. The same lunging, garrulous, blindly busy habit is the law of all we do. Take our literary critical journals. If a critic cannot tell what he sees at once, he must tell what he fails to see at once. The point is not his seeing or not seeing, nor anybody's seeing or not seeing. The point is the imperative at once. Literature is getting to be the filling of orders, time-limited orders. Criticism is out of a car window. Book reviews are telegraphed across the sea, Tennyson's memoirs. The blank daily, a spectacle for Homer, begins a magazine to review in three weeks every book of permanent value that is published. One of the gravest and most significant blows at literature one of the gravest and most significant signs of the condition of letters today that could be conceived. Three weeks, man! As if a book of permanent value had ever been recognized as yet in three years, or reviewed in thirty years in any proper sense, or mastered in three hundred years. With all the hurrying of this hurrying world, we have no book reviewers. Why should we? Criticism begins where a man's soul leaves off. It comes from brilliantly defective minds, so far as one can see, from men of attractively imperfect sympathies. Nordau, working himself into a mighty wrath because mystery is left out of his soul, gathering adjectives about his loins, stalks his little fluttered modern world, puts his huge fumbling hippopotamus hoof upon the blessed damoiselle, goes crashing through the press. He is greeted with a shudder of delight. Even Matthew Arnold, a man who had a way of seeing things almost, sometimes criticizes Emerson for a lack of unity, because the unity was on so large a scale that Arnold's imagination could not see it. And now the chirrup from afar, rising from the east and the west, why doesn't George Meredith, etc., people want him to put guideposts in his books, apparently, or before his sentences, to, hmm, or ten miles to the nearest verb. The inevitable fate of any writer, man or woman, who dares to ask in this present day that his reader shall stop to think, if a man cannot read as he runs, he does not read a book at all. The result is he ought to run. 
that is natural enough and the faster he runs in most books the better at this point the mysterious person reached out his long arm from his easy chair to some papers that were lying near i knew too well what it meant he began to read he is always breaking over into manuscript when he talks we are forgetting to see looking is a lost art with our poor wistful straining eyes we hurry along the days that slowly out of the rest of heaven move their stillness across this little world the more we hurry the more we read night and noon and morning the panorama passes before our eyes by tables on cars and in the street we see them readers readers everywhere drinking their blindness in life is a blur of printed paper we see no more the things themselves we see about them we lose the power to see the things themselves we see in sentences the linotype looks for us we know the world in columns the sounds of the street are muffled to us in papers up to our ears we whirl along our endless tracks the faces that pass us the faces that pass are phantoms in our little woodcut headline dream we go ceaseless on turning leaves days and weeks and months of leaves wherever we go years of leaves boys who have never seen the sky above them women who have never seen it in a face old men who have never looked out at sea across a crowd nor guessed the horizons there dead men the flicker of life in their hands not yet beneath the roofs of graves all turning leaves the mysterious person stopped nobody said anything it is the better way generally with the mysterious person we were beginning to feel as if he were through when his eye fell on a copy of the hm lying on the floor it was open at an unlucky page look at that said he he handed the paper to the pgs of m pointing with his finger rather excitedly the pgs of m looked at it read it through then he put it down the mysterious person went on do you not know what it means when you a civilized cultivated converted human being can stand face to face with a list a list like that a list headed books of the week when unblinking and shameless and without a cry of protest you actually read it through without seeing or seeming to see for a single moment that right there right there in that list the fact that there is such a list your civilization is on trial for its life that any society or nation or century that is shallow enough to publish as many books as that has yet to face the most awful the most unprecedented the most headlong coming crisis in the history of the human race the mysterious person made a pause the pause of settling things there are people who seem to think that the only really adequate way to settle a thing in this world is for them to ask a question about it at all events the mysterious person having asked a question at this point everybody might as well have the benefit of it in the meantime it is to be hoped that in the next chapter the presiding genius of the state of massachusetts or somebody will get a word in End of section one. section two of the lost art of reading by gerald stanley lee this librivox recording is in the public domain book one interferences with the reading habit civilization part six parentheses to the gentle reader this was a footnote at first 
It is placed at the top of the page in the hope that it will point at itself more and let the worst out at once. I want to say I a little in this book. I do not propose to do it very often. Indeed, I am not sure just now that I shall be able to do it at all. But I would like to have the feeling as I go along that arrangements have been made for it, and that it is understood, and that if I am fairly good about it, ring a little bell or something, and warn people I am going to be allowed, right here in my own book, at least, to say I when I want to. I is the way I feel on the inside about this subject. Anybody can see it, and I want to be honest in the first place, and in the second place, like a good many other people, I never have had what could be called a real good chance to say I in this world, and I feel that if I had, somehow it would cure me. I have tried other ways. I have tried calling myself he. I have stated my experiences and principles, called myself it, and in the first part of this book I have already fallen into the way, page after page, of borrowing other people, when all the time I knew perfectly well, and everybody, that I preferred myself. At all events, this calling one's self names, now one and now another, working one's way incognito, all the way through one's own book, is not making me as modest as I had hoped. There seems to be nothing for it, with some of us, but to work through to modesty the other way backward. I it out. There is one other reason. This mysterious person I have arranged with in these opening chapters to say I for me does not seem to be doing it very well. I think anyone, any fairly observing person, would admit that I could do it better, and if it's going to be done at all, why should a mere spiritual machine, a kind of moral phonograph like this mysterious person, be put forward to take the ignominy of it? I have set my eye up before me, and duly cross-examined it. I have said to it, either you are good enough to say I in a book, or you are not. And my eye has replied to me, if I am not, I want everybody to know why, and if I am, am, well, of course he is not, and we will all help him to know why. We will do as we would be done by. If there is ever going to be any possible comfort in this world for me, in not being what I ought to be, it is the thought that I am not the only one that knows it. At all events, this feeling that the worst is known, even if one takes, as I am doing now, a planet for a confessional, gives one a luxurious sense, a sense of combined safety and irresponsibility which would not be exchanged for a world. Every book should have eye-places in it, breathing holes, places where one's soul can come up to the surface and look out through the ice and say things. I do not wish to seem superior, and I will admit that I am as respectable as anybody in most places, but I do think that if half the time I am devoting, and am going to devote, to appearing as modest as people expect in this world, could be devoted to really doing something in it, my little modesty, such as it is, would not be missed. At all events, I am persuaded that anything, almost anything, would be better than this eternal keeping up appearances of all being a little less interested in ourselves than we are, which is what literature and society are for, mostly. We all do it, more or less. And yet, if there were only a few scattered along places, public soul-open places to rest in and be honest in, in art parlors and teas and things, wouldn't we see people rushing to them? I would give the world sometimes to believe that it would pay to be as honest with some people as with a piece of paper or with a book. I dare say I'm wrong in striking out and flourishing about in a chapter like this, 
and in threatening to have more like them but there is one comfort i lay to my soul in doing it if there is one thing rather than another book is for one's own book it is that it furnishes the one good fair safe place for a man to talk about himself in because it is the only place that anyone absolutely anyone at any moment can shut him up this is not saying that i am going to do it my courage will go from me for saying i i mean or i shall not be humble enough or something and it all will pass away i am going to do it now a little but i cannot guarantee it all of a sudden no telling when or why i shall feel that mysterious person with all his worldly trappings hanging around me again and before i know it before you know it gentle reader with all my eye or i shall be swallowed up next time i appear you shall see me decorous trim and in the third person my literary white tie on snooping along these sentences one after the other crossing my eyes out wishing i had never been born postscript i cannot help recording at this point for the benefit of reckless persons how saying i in a book feels it feels a good deal like a very small boy in a very high swing a kind of flashing of everything through nothing feeling but it cannot be undone now and so if you please gentle reader and if everybody will hold their breath i am going to hold on tight and do it seven more parentheses but more to the point i have gotten into a way lately while i am just living along of going out and taking a good square turn every now and then in front of myself it is not altogether an agreeable experience but there seems to be a window in every man's nature on purpose for it arranged and located on purpose for it and i find on the whole that going out around one's window once in so often and standing a while has its advantages the general idea is to stand perfectly still for a little time in a kind of general public disinterested way and then suddenly when one is off one's guard and not looking so to speak take a peek backwards into one's self i am aware that it does not follow because i have just come out and have been looking into my window that i have a right to hold up any person or persons who may be going by in this book and ask them to look in too but at the same time i cannot conceal do not wish to conceal even if i could that there have been times standing in front of my window and looking in when what i have seen there has seemed to me to assume a national significance there are millions of other windows like it. it is one of the daily sorrows of my life that the people who own them do not seem to know it most of them except perhaps in a vague hurried pained way sometimes i feel like calling out to them as i stand by my window see them go hurrying by on the great street say there stranger hello a stranger want to see yourself come right over here and look at me nobody believes it of course it's a good deal like standing and waving one's arms in the midway being an egotist but i must say i have never got a man yet got him in out of the rush i mean right in front of my window got him once stooped down and really looking in there but he admitted there was something in it this does it come to pass this gentle swelling let me be a warning to you gentle reader when you once get to philosophizing yourself over along the line of your faults into the disputed territory of the first person singular i am not asking you to try to believe my little philosophy of types i am trying to in my humble way to be sure but i would rather on the whole let it go it is not so much my philosophy i rest my case on as my sub-philosophy or religion to wit i like it and believe in it saying i 
thank heaven that bad as it is i have struck bottom at last the best i can do under the circumstances i suppose is to beg in a perfectly blank way forgiveness forgiveness of any and every kind from everybody if in this and the following chapters i fall sometimes to talking of people people at large under the general head of myself i was born to read i spent all my early years as i remember them with books peering softly about in them my whole being was hushed and trustful and expectant at the sight of a printed page i lived in the presence of books with all my thoughts lying open about me a kind of still radiant mood of welcome seemed to lie upon them when i looked at a shelf of books i felt the whole world flocking to me i have been civilized now i should say twenty or possibly twenty-five years at least every one supposes i am civilized and my whole being has changed i cannot so much as look upon a great many books in a library or any other heaped-up place without feeling bleak and heartless i never read if i can help it i never read if i can help it my whole attitude toward current literature is grouty and snappish a kind of perpetual interrupted what are you ringing my doorbell now for attitude i am a disagreeable character i spend at least one half my time i should judge keeping things off in defending my character then i spend the other half in wondering if after all it was worth it what i see in my window has changed when i used to go out around and look into it in the old days to see what i was like i was a sunny open valley streams and roads and everything running down into it and opening out of it and when i go out suddenly now and turn around in front of myself and look in i am a mountain pass i sift my friends up a trail the few friends that come come a little out of breath god bless them and a book cannot so much as get to me except on a mule's back it is by no means an ideal arrangement a mountain pass but it is better than always sitting in one's study in civilization where every passer-by pamphlet boy in the street thinks he might just as well come up and ring one's doorbell a while all modern books are book agents at heart around getting subscriptions for themselves if a man wants to be sociable or literary nowadays he can only do it by being a more or less disagreeable character and if he wishes to be a beautiful character he must go off and do it by himself this is a mere choice in suicides the question that presses upon me whose fault is it that a poor wistful incomplete human being born into this huge dilemma of a world can only keep on having a soul in it by keeping that is his soul tossed back and forth now in one place where souls are lost and now in another is it your fault or mine gentle reader that we are obliged to live in this undignified obstreperous fashion in what is called civilization i cannot believe it nearly all the best people one knows can be seen sitting in civilization on the edge of their chairs or hurrying along with their souls and satchels there is but one conclusion civilization is not what it is advertised to be every time i see a fresh missionary down at the steamer wharf as i do sometimes starting away for other lands loaded up with our institutions to the eyes church in one hand and schoolhouse in the other trim happy and smiling over them at everybody i feel like stepping up to him and saying what seemed to me a few appropriate words i seldom do it but the other day when i happened to be down at the umbria dock about sailing time i came across one a foreign missionary i mean pleasant thoughtless and benevolent looking standing there all by himself by the steamer rail and i thought i would try to speak to him 
where are you going to be putting those i said pointing to a lot of funny little churches and funny little schoolhouses he was holding in both hands from greenland's icy mountains to india's coral strand he said i looked at them a minute you don't think do you i said you don't really think you had better wait over a little bring them back and let us finish them for you do you one or two samples he looked at me with what seemed to me at first a kind of blurred helpless look i soon saw that he was pitying me and i promptly stepped down to the dining saloon and tried to appreciate two or three tons of flowers i do not wish to say a word against missionaries they are merely apt to be somewhat heedless morally hurried persons rushing about the world turning people as they think right side up everywhere without really noticing them much but i do think that a great deliberate corporate body like the american board of commissioners of foreign missions ought to be more optimistic about the church wait and work for a little more expect a little more of it it seems to me that it ought to be far less pessimistic than it is also about what we can do in the way of schools and social life in civilization and about civilization's way of doing business is our little knack of christianity i find myself wondering quite worthy of all this attention it is getting from the american board of commissioners of foreign missions why should it approve of civilization with a rush does anyone really suppose that it is really time to pat it on the back yet to spend a million dollars a year patting it on the back i merely throw out the question seven more literary rush we had been talking along in our club as usual for some time on the general subject of the world fixing the blame for things we had come to the point where it was nearly all fixed most of it on other people when i thought i might as well put forward my little theory that nearly everything that was the matter could be traced to the people who belong to society then the pgs of m who is always shoving a dictionary around in front of him when he talks spoke up and said but who belongs to society all persons who read what they are told to and who call where they can't help it what this world needs just now i went on looking the pgs of m as much in the eye as i could is emancipation it needs a prophet a man who can gather about him a few brave-hearted intelligently ignorant men who shall go about with their beautiful feet on the mountains telling the good tidings of how many things there are we do not need to know the prejudice against being ignorant is largely because people have not learned how to do it the wrong people have taken hold of it i cannot remember the exact words of what was said after this but i said that it seemed to me that most people were afraid not to know everything not knowing too much is a natural gift and unless a man can make his ignorance contagious inspire people with the books he dares not read of course the only thing he can do is to give up and read everything and belong to the society he certainly cannot belong to himself unless he protects himself with well-selected carefully guarded daring ignorance think of the books the books that are dictated to us the books that will not let a man go and behind every book a hundred intelligent men and women one's friends too one's own kin p g s of m but the cultured man must the cultured man is the man who can tell me what he does not know with such grace that i feel ashamed of knowing it now there's m blank for example other people seem to read to talk but i never see him across a drawing-room without an impulse of barbarism i always get him off into a corner as soon as i can if only to rest myself to feel that i have a right not to read everything 
He always proves to me something that I can get along without. He is full of the most choice and picturesque bits of ignorance. He is creatively ignorant. He displaces a book every time I see him, which is a deal better in these days than writing one. A man should be measured by his book displacement. He goes about with his thinking face and a kind of nimbus over him, of never needing to read at all. He has nothing whatever to give but himself, but I had rather have one of his questions about a book I had read than all the other opinions and subtle distinctions in the room, or the book itself. P.G.S. of M. But the cultured man must... Not. It is the very essence of a cultured man that when he hears the word must, it is on his own lips. It is the very essence of his culture that he says it to himself. His culture is his belonging to himself, and his belonging to himself is the first condition of his being worth giving to other people. One longs for Elia. People know too much, and there doesn't seem to be a man living who can charm them from the error of their way. Knowledge takes the place of everything else, and all one can do in this present day as he reads the reviews and goes to his club is to look forward with a tired heart to the prophecy of Scripture. Knowledge shall pass away. Where do we see the old and sweet content of loving a thing for itself? Now there are flowers. The only way to delight in a flower at your feet in these days is to watch with it all alone or keep still about it. The moment you speak of it, it becomes botany. It's a rare man who will not tell you all he knows about it. Love isn't worth anything without a classic name. It's a wonder we have any flowers left. Half the charm of a flower to me is that it looks demure and talks perfume and keeps its name so gently to itself. The man who always enjoys views by picking out the places he knows is a symbol of all our reading habits and of our national relation to books. One can glory in a great cliff down in the depths of his heart, but if you mention it, it is geology and an argument. Even the birds sing zoologically, and as for the sky, it has become a mere blue and gold science, and all the wonder seems to be confined to one's not knowing the names of the planets. I was brought up wistfully on, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. But now it has become, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, teachers told me what you are. Even babies won't wonder very soon. That is to say, they won't wonder out loud. Nobody does. Another of my poems was, Where did you come from, baby dear? Out of the everywhere, into here. I thought of it the other day when I stepped into the library with the list of books I had to have an opinion about before Mrs. W.'s Thursday afternoon. I felt like a literary infant. Where did you come from, baby fair? Out of the here, into everywhere. And the bookcases stared at me. It is a serious question whether the average American youth is ever given a chance to thirst for knowledge. He thirsts for ignorance instead. From the very first he is hemmed in by knowledge, the kindergarten with its suave relentlessness, its perfunctory cheerfulness, closes in upon the life of every child with himself, the dear old-fashioned breathing spell he used to have after getting here. Whither has it gone? The rough, strong, ruthless, unseemly, grown-up world crowds to the very edge of every beginning life. It has no patience with trailing clouds of glory, flocks of infants, every year newcomers to this planet, who can but watch them sadly, huddled closer and closer to the little strip of wonder that is left near the land from which they came. No lingering away from us, no infinite holiday. Childhood walks a precipice crowded to the brink of birth. We tabulate its moods, we register its learning inch by inch. 
we draw its poor little premature soul out of its body breath by breath infants are well informed now Sasuckling has nerves a few days more and he will be like all the rest of us it will be poem when i was weaned my first tooth a study the presiding genius of the state of massachusetts with his dazed kind look looked up and said i fear my dear fellow there is no place for you in this world thanks one of the delights of going fishing or hunting is that one learns how small a place in the world is comes across so many accidentally preserved characters preserved by not having a place in the world persons that are interesting to be with persons you can tell things the real object it seems to me in meeting another human being is compliment fitting into each other's ignorances sometimes it seems as if it were only where there is something to be caught or shot or where there is plenty of room that the highest and most sociable and useful forms of ignorance were allowed to mature one can still find such fascinating prejudices such frank enthusiasms of ignorance where there's good fishing and then in the straight hamlets there is the grave whimsicalness and the calm superior air of austerity to cultured people ah let me live in the maine woods or wander by the brooks of virginia and rest my soul in the delights in the pomposity of ignorance ignorance in its pride and glory and courage and lovableness i never come back from a vacation without a dream of what i might have been if i had only dared to know a little less and even now i sometimes feel i have ignorance enough if like elia for instance i only knew how to use it but i cannot as much as get over being ashamed of it i am nearly gone i have little left but the gift of being bored that is something but hardly a day passes without my slurring over a guilty place in conversation without my hiding my ignorance under a bushel where i can go later and take a look at it by myself then i know all about it next time and sink lower and lower a man can do nothing alone of course ignorance must be natural and acquired in order to have the true ring and afford the most relief in the world but every wide-awake village that has thoughtful people enough people who are educated up to it ought to organize an ignoramus club to defend the town from papers and books it was at about this point that the presiding genius of the state of massachusetts took up the subject and after modulating a little and then modulating a little more he was soon listening to himself about a book we had not read and i sat in my chair and wrote out this nine the bugbear of being well informed a practical suggestion one this club shall be known as the ignoramus club of four every member shall be pledged not to read the latest book until people have stopped expecting it five the club shall have a standing committee that shall report at every meeting on new things that people do not need to know six it shall have a public library committee appointed every year to look over the books in regular order and report on old things that people do not need to know committee constructed to keep the library as small as possible eight no member vacations excepted shall read any book that he would not read twice in case he does he shall be obliged to read it twice or pay a fine three times the price of book net eleven the club shall meet weekly twelve any person of suitable age shall be eligible for membership in the club who after a written examination in his deficiencies shall appear in the opinion of the examining board to have selected his ignorance thoughtfully conscientiously and for the protection of his mind thirteen 
all persons thus approved shall be voted upon at the next regular meeting of the club the vote to be taken by ballot any candidate who has not read when knighthood was in flower or audrey or david harem by acclamation perhaps i have quoted from the bylaws sufficiently to give an idea of the spirit and aim of the club i append the order of meeting one call to order two reports of committees three general confession what members have read during the week four fines five review books i have escaped six essay things plato did not need to know seven omniscience helpful hints remedies eight the description of evil followed by an illustration nine not travelling on the nile by one who has been there ten our village street stereopticon eleven what not to know about birds twelve myself through an opera glass thirteen sonnet botany fourteen essay proper treatment of paupers insane and instructive people fifteen the fad for facts sixteen how to organize a club against clubs seventeen paper how to humble him who asks have you read eighteen essay by youngest member infinity and appreciation nineteen review the heavens in a nutshell twenty review wild animals i do not want to know twenty one exercise in silence ten minutes entire club twenty two essay ten minutes encyclopedia britannica summary twenty three exercise in wondering about something selected ten minutes entire club twenty four debate which is more deadly the pen or the sword twenty five things said to-night that we must forget twenty six adjournment each member required to walk home alone looking at the stars i have sometimes thought i would like to go off to some great wide bare splendid place nothing but time and room in it and read a while i would want it built in the same general style and with the same general effect as the universe but a universe in which everything lets one alone in which everything just goes quietly on its great still round letting itself be looked at no more said about it nothing to be done about it no exclamations required no one standing around explaining things or showing how they appreciated them then after i had looked about a little seen that everything was safe and according to specifications i think the first thing i would do would be to sit down and see if i could not read a great book the way i used to read a great book before i belonged to civilization read it until i felt my soul growing softly toward it reaching up to the day and to the night with it i have always kept on hoping that i would be allowed in spite of being somewhat mixed up with civilization to be a normal man sometime it has always seemed to me that the normal man the highly organized man in all ages is the man who takes the universe primarily as a spectacle this is the main use for it the object of his life is to get a good look at it before he dies to be the kind of man who can get a good look at it how anyone can go through a whole life sixty or seventy years of it with a splendor like this arching over him morning noon and night flying beneath his feet blooming out at him on every side and not spend nearly all his time after the bare necessaries of life in taking it in listening and tasting and looking in it is one of the seven wonders of the world i never look out of my factory window in civilization see a sunset or shore of the universe am reminded again that there is a universe but i wonder at myself and i wonder at it 
I try to put civilization and the universe together. I cannot do it. It's as if we were afraid to be caught looking at it, most of us, spending the time to look at it, or as if we were ashamed before the universe itself, running furiously to and fro in it, lest it should look at us. It is the first trait of a great book, it seems to me, that it makes all other books, little hurrying petulant books, wait. A kind of immeasurable elemental hunger comes to a man out of it. Somehow I feel I have not had it out with a great book, if I have not faced other great things with it. I want to face storms with it, hours of weariness and miles of walking with it. It seems to ask me to. It seems to bring with it something which makes me want to stop my mere reading and doing kind of life, my ink and paper imitation kind of life, and come out and be a companion with the silent shining, with the eternal going on of things. It seems to be written in every writing that is worth a man's while that it cannot, that it shall not, be read by itself. It is written that a man shall work to read, that he must win some great delight to do his reading with. Many and many a winter day I've tramped with four lines down to the edge of the night to overtake my soul, to read four lines with it. I have faced a wind for hours, been bitterly cold with it, before the utmost joy of the book I had lost would come back to me. I find that when I am being normal, vacations mostly, I scarcely know what it is to give myself over to another mind for more than an hour or so at a time. If a chapter has anything in it, I want to do something with it, go out and believe it, live with it, exercise it a while. I am not only bored with a book when it does not interest me, I am bored with it when it does. I want to interrupt it, take it outdoors, see what the hills and clouds think, try it on, test it, see if it is good enough, see if it can come down upon me as rain or sunlight or other real things and blow upon me as the wind. It does not belong to me until it has found its way through all the weathers within and the weathers without, until it drifts with me through moods, events, sensations, and days and nights, faces and sunsets, and the light of stars. It is a part of life itself. I find there is no other or shorter or easier way for me to do with a great book than to greet it as it seems to ask to be greeted as if it were a world that had come to me and sought me out, wanted me to live in it. Hundreds and hundreds of times, when I am being civilized, have I not tried to do otherwise? Have I not stopped my poor, pale, hurried, busy soul, like a kind of spectre flying past me, before a great book and tried to get it to speak to it, and it would not? It requires a world, a great book does, as a kind of ticket of admission, and what I have to do when I am being civilized with a world, the one that's running still and godlike over me, do I not for days and weeks at a time go about in it, guilty, shut in, and foolish under it, slinking about, its emptied miracles all around me, mean, joyless, anxious, unable to look the littlest flower in the face, unable, ah, God, my soul cries out within me, are not all these things mine? Do they not belong with me and I with them? and I go racing about, making things up in their presence, plodding for shadows, cutting out paper dolls to live with, all the time this earnest, splendid, wasted heaven shining over me, doing nothing with it, expecting nothing of it, a little more warmth out of it, perhaps, a little more light not to see in. Who am I that the grasses should whisper to me, that the winds should blow upon me? Now and then there are days that come when I see a flower, when I really see a flower, and my soul cries out to it. Now and then there are days, too, when I see a great book, a book that has the universe wrought in it. I find my soul feeling it vaguely, creeping toward it. I wonder if I dare read it. I remember how I used to read it. 
I all but pray to it. I sit in my factory window and try sometimes, but it is all far away, at least as long as I stay in my window. It's all about someone else, a kind of splendid wistful walking in a dream. It does not really belong to me to live in a great book, a book with the universe in it. Sometimes it almost seems to, but it barely, faintly belongs to me. It is as if the sky came to me, and stooped down over me, and then went softly away in my sleep. End of section two. Book one, Interferences with the Reading Habit. Civilization. Section ten, The Dead Level of Intelligence. By Gerald Stanley Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 10. The Dead Level of Intelligence Your hostess introduces you to a man in a drawing-room. Mr. C. belongs to a Browning Club, too, she says. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to talk about Browning? Not if Browning is one of your alive places. You will reconnoiter first, James Whitcomb Riley or Ella Wheeler Wilcox. There is no telling where the enemy will bring you up if you do not. He may tell you something about Browning you never knew, something you have always wanted to know, but you will be hurt that he knew it. He may be the original grammarian of the grammarian's funeral, whom Robert Browning took, and knew perfectly well that he took at the one poetic moment of his life, but his belonging to a Browning club, the enemy, that is, does not mean anything to you or to anyone else nowadays, either about Browning or about himself. There was a time once when, if a man revealed in conversation that he was familiar with poetic structure in John Keats, it meant something about the man, his temperament, his producing or delighting power. It means now that he has taken a course in poetics in college, or teaches English in a high school, and is carrying deadly information about with him wherever he goes. It does not mean that he has a spark of the Keats spirit in him, or that he could have endured being in the same room with Keats, or Keats could have endured being in the same room with him for fifteen minutes. If there is one inconvenience rather than another in being born in the latter half of the nineteenth century, it is the almost constant compulsion one is under in it of finding people out, making a distinction between the people who know a beautiful thing and are worthwhile and the boors of culture, the people who know all about it. One sees on every hand today persons occupying positions of importance who have been taken through all the motions of education, from the bottom to the top, but who always belong to the intellectual lower classes, whatever their positions may be, because they are not masters. They are clumsy and futile with knowledge. Their culture has not been made over into them, selves. They have acquired it largely under mob influence, the dead level of intelligence, and all that they can do with it, not wanting it, is to be teachery with it, force it on other people who do not want it. Whether in the origin, processes, or results of their learning, these people have all the attributes of a mob. Their influence and force in civilization is a mob influence, and it operates in the old and classic fashion of mobs upon all who oppose it. It constitutes at present the most important and securely entrenched intimidating force that modern society presents against the actual culture of the world, whether in the schools or out of them, its voice is in every street, and its shout of derision may be heard in almost every walk of life against all who refuse to conform to it. 
there are but very few who refuse millions of human beings young and old in meek and willing rows are seen on every side standing before it the dead level anxious to do anything to be graded up to it or to be graded down to it offering their heads to be taken off their necks to be stretched or their waists willing to live footless all their days anything anything whatever bless their hearts to know that they are on the level the dead level the precise and exact dead level of intelligence the fact that this mob power keeps its hold by using books instead of bricks is merely a matter of form it occupies most of the strategic positions just now in the highways of learning and it does all the things that mobs do and does them in the way that mobs do them it has broken into the gardens into the arts the resting places of nations and with its factories to learn to love in its treadmills to learn to sing in it girdles its belt of drudgery around the world and carries bricks and mortar to the clouds it shouts to every human being across the spaces the outdoors of life who goes there come thou with us dig thou with us root or die every vagrant joy-maker and world-builder the modern era boasts genius lover singer artist has had to have his struggle with the hod-carriers of culture and if a lover of books has not enough love in him to refuse to be coerced into joining the huge intimidator the aggregation of the reading labor unions of the world which rules the world there is little hope for him all true books draw quietly away from him their spirit is a spirit he cannot know it would be hard to find a more significant fact with regard to the ruling culture of modern life than the almost total displacement of temperament in it its blank staring inexpressiveness we have lived our lives so long under the domination of the cultured man must theory of education the industry of being well informed has gained such headway with us that out of all of the crowds of the civilized we prefer to live with to-day one must go very far to find a cultivated man who has not violated himself in his knowledge who has not given up his last chance at distinction his last chance to have his knowledge fit him closely and express him and belong to him the time was when knowledge was made to fit people like their clothes but now that we have come to the point where we pride ourselves on educating people in rows and civilizing them in the bulk if a man has the privilege of being born by himself of beginning his life by himself it is as much as he can expect says the typical board of education the result is so far as his being educated is concerned the average man looks back to his first birthday as his last chance of being treated as god made him a special creation by himself the almighty may deal with a man when he makes him as a special creation by himself he may manage to do it afterward we cannot says the board succinctly drawing its salary it increases the tax rate the problem is dealt with simply enough there is just so much cloth to be had and just so many young and two-legged persons to be covered with it and that is the end of it the growing child walks down the years turns every corner of life with vistas of ready-made clothing hanging before him closing behind him unless he shall fit himself to these clothes he is given to understand down the pitying staring world he shall go naked all his days like a dream in the night it is a general principle that a nation's life can be said to be 
truly a civilized life in proportion as it is expressive and in proportion as all the persons in it in the things they know and in the things they do are engaged in expressing what they are a generation may be said to stand forth in history to be a great and memorable generation in art and letters in material and spiritual creation in proportion as the knowledge of that generation was fitted to the people who wore it and the things they were doing in it and the things they were born to do if it were not contradicted by almost every attribute of what is being called an age of special and general culture it would seem to be the first axiom of all culture that knowledge can only be made to be true knowledge by being made to fit people and to express them as their clothes fit them and express them but we do not want knowledge in our civilization to fit people as their clothes fit them we do not even want their clothes to fit them the people themselves do not want it our modern life is an elaborate and organized endeavor on the part of almost every person in it to escape from being fitted either in knowledge or in anything else the first symptom of civilization of the fact that a man is becoming civilized is that he wishes to appear to belong where he does not it is looked upon as the spirit of the age he wishes to be learned that no one may find out how little he knows he wishes to be religious that no one may see how wicked he is he wishes to be respectable that no one may know that he does not respect himself the result mocks at us from every corner in life society is a struggle to get into the wrong clothes culture is a struggle to learn the things that belong to someone else black molly who's the cook next door presented her betrothed last week a stable hand on the farm with an eight-dollar manicure set she did not mean to sum up the condition of culture in the united states in this simple and tender act but she did michael o'hennessy who lives under the hill sums it up also he has just bought a brougham in which he and mrs o h can be seen almost any pleasant sunday driving in the park it is not to be denied that michael o'hennessy sitting in his brougham is a genuinely happy-looking object but it is not the brougham itself that michael enjoys what he enjoys is the fact that he's bought the brougham and that the brougham belongs to someone else mrs john brown smith who presides at our tubs from week to week and who comes to us in a brilliant silk waist removed for business has just bought a piano to play hold the fort on with one finger when the neighbors are passing by a fact which is not without national significance which sheds light upon schools and upon college catalogues and learning shows and upon educational conditions through the whole united states it would be a great pity if a man could not know the things that have always belonged before to other men to know and it is the essence of culture that he should but his appearing to know things that belong to someone else his desire to appear to know them heaps up darkness the more things there are a man knows without knowing the inside of them the spirit of them the more kinds of an ignoramus he is it is not enough to say that the learned man learned in this way is merely ignorant his ignorance is placed where it counts the most generally at the fountainheads of society and he radiates ignorance there seem to be three objections to the dead level of intelligence getting people at all hazards alive or dead to know certain things first the things that a person who learns in this way appears to know are blighted by his appearing to know them second he keeps other people who might know them from wanting to third he poisons his own life by appearing to know by even desiring to appear to know 
what is not in him to know he takes away the last hope he can ever have of really knowing the thing he appears to know and unless he is careful the last hope he can ever have of really knowing anything he destroys the thing a man does his knowing with it is not the least pathetic phase of the great industry of being well informed that thousands of men and women may be seen on every hand giving up their lives that they may appear to live and giving up knowledge that they may appear to know taking pains for vacuums success in appearing to know is success in locking oneself outside of knowledge and all that can be said of the most learned man that lives if he is learned in this way is that he knows more things that he does not know about more things than any man in the world he runs the gamut of ignorance in the meantime as long as the industry of being well informed is the main ideal of living in the world as long as every man's life chasing the shadow of some other man's life goes hurrying by grasping at ignorance there is nothing we can do most of us as educators but to rescue a youth now and then from the rush and wait for the results both good and evil to work themselves out those of us who respect every man's life and delight in it and in the dignity of the things that belong to it would like to do many things we should be particularly glad to join hands in the practical things that are being hurried into the hurry around us but they do not seem to us practical the only practical thing we know of that can be done with a man who does not respect himself is to get him to it is true no doubt that we cannot respect another man's life for him but we are profoundly convinced that we cannot do anything more practical for a, such a man's life than respecting it until he respects it himself and we are convinced also that until he does respect it himself respecting it for him is the only thing that anyone else can do the beginning and the end of all action for him and of all knowledge democracy today in education as in everything else is facing its supreme opportunity going about in the world respecting men until they respect themselves is almost the only practical way there is of serving them we find it necessary to believe that any man in this present day who shall be inspired to respect his life who shall refuse to take himself the things that do not belong to his life who shall break with the appearance of things who shall rejoice in the things that are really real to him there shall be no withstanding him the strength of the universe shall be with him he shall be glorious in it the man who lives down through the knowledge that he has has all the secret of all knowledge that he does not have the spirit that all truths are known with becomes his spirit the essential mastery over all real things and over all real men is his possession for ever when this vital and delighted knowledge knowledge that is based on facts one's own self-respecting experience with facts shall begin again to be the habit of the educated life the days of the dead level of intelligence shall be numbered men are going to be the embodiment of the truths they know some time as they have been in the past when the world is filled once more with men who know what they know learning will cease to be a theory about a theory of life and children will acquire truths as helplessly and inescapably as they acquire parents truths will be learned through the types of men the truths have made a man was meant to learn truths by gazing up and down lives out of his own life when these principles are brought home to educators 
when they are practised in some degree by the people instead of merely as they have always been before by the leaders of the people the world of knowledge shall be a new world a knowledge shall be human incarnate expressive artistic whole systems of knowledge shall come to us by seeing one another's faces on the street and of section ten of book one interferences with the reading habit civilization the dead level of intelligence section four of the lost art of reading by gerald stanley lee this librivox recording is in the public domain book one interferences with the reading habit civilization chapter eleven the art of reading as one likes most of us are apt to discover by the time we are too old to get over it that we are born with a natural gift for being interested in ourselves we realize in a general way that our lives are not very important that they are being lived on a comparatively obscure but comfortable little planet on a side street in space but no matter how much we study astronomy nor how fully we are made to feel how many other worlds there are for people to live on and how many other people have lived on this one we are still interested in ourselves the fact that the universe is very large is neither here nor there to us in a certain sense it is a mere matter of size a man has to live on it if he had to live on all of it it would be different it naturally comes to pass that when a human being once discovers that he is born in a universe like this his first business in it is to find out the relation of the nearest most sympathetic part of it to himself after the usual first successful experiment a child makes in making connection with the universe the next thing he learns is how much of the universe there is that is not good to eat he does not quite understand it at first the unswallowableness of things he soon comes to the conclusion that although it is worth while as a general principle in dealing with a universe to try to make the connection as a rule with one's mouth it cannot be expected to succeed except part of the time he looks for another connection he learns that some things in this world are merely made to feel and drop on the floor he discovers each of his senses by trying to make some other sense work if his mouth waters for the moon and he tries to smack his lips on a lullaby who shall smile at him poor little fellow making his sturdy lunges at this huge impenetrable world he was making his connection and getting his hold on his world of color and sense and sound with infinitely more truth and patience and precision and delight than nine out of ten of his elders are doing or have ever been able to do in the world of books the books that were written to be breathed gravely chewed upon by the literary infants of this modern day who can number them books that were made to live in vast open clearings in the thicket of life chapters like tents to dwell in under the wide heaven visited like railway stations by excursion trains of readers books that were made to look down from serene mountain heights criticized because factories are not founded on them in every reading-room hundreds of people who has not seen them looking up inspirations in encyclopedias poring over poems for facts looking in the clouds for seeds digging in the ground for sunsets and everywhere through all the world the whole huddling crowding mob of those who read hastening on its endless paper-paved streets from the pyramids of egypt and the gates of greece to paternoster row and the old corner bookstore 
nearly all of them trying to make the wrong connections with the right things or the right connections with things they have no connection with and only now and then a straggler lagging behind perhaps at some leftover bookstall who truly knows how to read or some beautiful overgrown child let loose in a library making connections for himself who knows the uttermost joy of a book in seeking for a fundamental principle to proceed upon in the reading of books it seems only reasonable to assert that the printed universe is governed by the same laws as the real one if a child is to have his senses about him his five reading senses he must learn them in exactly the way he learns his five living senses the most significant fact about the way a child learns the five senses he has to live with is that no one can teach them to him we do not even try to there are still thanks to a most merciful heaven five things left in the poor experimented on battered modern child that a board of education cannot get at for the first few months of his life at least it is generally conceded the modern infant has his education that is his making connection with things entirely in his own hands that he learns more these first few months of his life when his education is in his own hands than he learns in all the later days when he is surrounded by those who hope they are teaching him something it may not be fair to say but while it cannot be said that he learns more perhaps what he does learn he learns better and more scientifically than he is ever allowed to learn with ordinary parents and ordinary teachers and textbooks in the years that come afterward with most of us this first year or so we are obliged to confess was the chance of our lives some of us have lived long enough to suspect that if we have ever really learned anything at all we must have learned it then the whole problem of bringing to pass in others and of maintaining in ourselves a vital and beautiful relation to the world of books turns entirely upon such success as we may have in calling back or keeping up in our attitude toward books the attitude of the newborn child when he wakes in the sunshine of the earth and little by little on the edge of the infinite groping and slow begins to make his connections with the universe it cannot be overemphasized that this newborn child makes these connections for himself that the entire value of having these connections made is in the fact that he makes them for himself as between the books in a library that ought to be read and a new life standing in it that ought to read them the sacred thing is not the books the child ought to read the sacred thing is the way the child feels about the books and unless the new life like the needle of a magnet trembling there under the whole wide heaven of them all is allowed to turn and poise itself by laws of attraction and repulsion forever left out of our hands the magnet is ruined it is made a dead thing it makes no difference how many similar books may be placed within range of the dead thing afterward nor how many good reasons there may be for the dead things being attracted to them the poise of the magnet toward a book which is the sole secret of any power that a book can have is trained and disciplined out of it the poise of the magnet the magnet's poising itself is inspiration and inspiration is what a book is for if john milton had had any idea when he wrote the little book called paradise lost that it was going to be used mostly during the nineteenth century to batter children's minds with it is doubtful if he would ever have had the heart to write it it does not damage a book very much to let it lie on a wooden shelf little longer than it ought to 
but to come crashing down into the exquisite filaments of a human brain with it to use it to keep a brain from continuing to be a brain that is an organ with all its reading senses acting and reacting warm and living in it is a very serious matter it always ends in the same way this modern brutality with books even bibles cannot stand it human nature stands it least of all that books of all things in this world made to open mind's instincts with should be so generally used to shut them up with is one of the saddest signs we have of the caricature of culture that is having its way in our modern world it is getting so that the only way the average dinned at educated modern boy shut in with masterpieces can really get to read is in some still overlooked moment when people are too tired of him to do him good then softly perhaps guiltily left all by himself with a book he stumbles all of a sudden on his soul steals out and loves something it may not be the best but listening to the singing of the crickets is more worth while than seeming to listen to the music of the spheres it leads to the music of the spheres all agencies persons institutions or customs that interfere with this sensitive self-discovering moment when a human spirit makes its connection in life with its ideal that interfere with its being a genuine instinctive free and beautiful connection living and growing daily of itself all influences that tend to make it a formal connection or a merely decorous or borrowed one whether they act in the name of culture or religion or the state are the profoundest most subtle and most unconquerable enemies of culture in the world it is not necessary to contend for the doctrine of reading as one likes using the word likes in the sense of direction and temperament in its larger and more permanent sense it is but necessary to call attention to the fact that the universe of books is such a very large and various universe a universe in which so much that one likes can be brought to bear at any given point that reading as one likes is almost always safe in it there is always more of what one likes than what one can possibly read it is impossible to like any one thing deeply without discovering a hundred other things to like with it one is infallibly led out if one touches the universe vitally at one point all the rest of the universe flocks to it it is the way a universe is made almost anything can be accomplished with a child who has a habit of being eager with books who respects them enough and who respects himself enough to leave books alone when he cannot be eager with them eagerness in reading counts as much as it does in living a live reader who reads the wrong books is more promising than a dead one who reads the right ones being alive is the point anything can be done with life it is the seed of infinity while much might be said for the topical or purely scientific method in learning how to read it certainly is not claiming too much for the human artistic or personal point of view in reading that it comes first in the order of time in a developing life and first in the order of strategic importance topical or scientific reading cannot be fruitful it cannot even be scientific in the larger sense except as in its own time and in its own way it selects itself in due time in a boy's life buds out and is allowed to branch out from his own inner personal reading as the first and most important and most far-reaching of the arts of reading is the art of reading as one likes the principles inspirations and difficulties of reading as one likes are the first to be considered in the following chapters 
the fact that the art of reading as one likes is the most difficult perhaps the most impossible of all the arts in modern times constitutes one of those serio-comic problems of civilization a problem which civilization itself with all its swagger of science its literary braggadocio its library cure with all its board schools commissioners of education and specialists and bishops and newsboys all hard at work upon it is only beginning to realize end of section four section five of the lost art of reading by gerald stanley lee this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Book One, Interferences with the Reading Habit. The Second Interference, The Disgrace of the Imagination. On Wondering Why One Was Born. The real trouble with most of the attempts that teachers and parents make to teach children a vital relation to books is that they do not believe in the books and that they do not believe in the children. It is almost impossible to find a child who, in one direction or another, the first few years of his life, is not creative. It is almost impossible to find a parent or a teacher who does not discourage this creativeness. The discouragement begins in a small way at first, in the average family, but as the more creative a child becomes, the more inconvenient he is. As a general rule, every time a boy is caught being creative, something has to be done to him about it. It is a part of the nature of creativeness that it involves being creative a large part of the time in the wrong direction. Half-proud and half-stupefied parents, failing to see that the mischief in a boy is the entire basis of his education, the mainspring of his life, not being able to break the mainspring themselves, frequently hire teachers to help them. The teacher who can break a mainspring first and keep it from getting mended is often the most esteemed in the community. Those who have broken the most secure results. The spectacle of the mechanical, barren, conventional society, so common in the present day to all who love their kind, is a sign there is no withstanding. It is a spectacle we can only stand and watch, some of us, the huge, dreary kinetoscope of it grinding its cogs and wheels and swinging its weary faces past our eyes the most common sight in it and the one that hurts the hardest is the boy who could be made into a man out of the parts of him that his parents and teachers are trying to throw away the faults of the average child as things are going just now would be the making of him if he could be placed in seeing hands it may not be possible to educate a boy by using what has been left out of him but it is more than possible to begin his education by using what ought to have been left out of him so long as parents and teachers are either too dull or too busy to experiment with mischief to be willing to pay for a child's originality what originality costs only the most hopeless children can be expected to amount to anything if we fail to see that originality is worth paying for that the risk involved in a child's not being creative is infinitely more serious than the risk involved in his being creative in the wrong direction there is little either for us or for our children to hope for as the years go on except to grow duller together 
we do not like this growing duller together very well perhaps but we have the feeling at least that we have been educated and when our children become at last as little interested in the workings of their minds as parents and teachers are in theirs we have the feeling that they also have been educated we are not unwilling to admit in a somewhat useless kindly generalizing fashion that vital and beautiful children delight in things in proportion as they discover them or are allowed to make them up but we do not propose in the meantime to have our own children any more vital and beautiful than we can help in four or five years they discover that a home is a place where the more one thinks of things the more unhappy he is in four or five years more they learn that a school is a place where children are expected not to use their brains while they are being cultivated as long as he is at his mother's breast the typical american child finds that he is admired for thinking of things when he runs around the house he finds gradually that he is admired very much less for thinking of things at school he is disciplined for it in a library if he has an uncommonly active mind and takes the liberty of being as alive there as he is outdoors if he roams through the books vaults over their fences climbs up their mountains and eats of their fruit and dreams by their streams or is caught camping out in their woods he is made an example of he is treated as a tramp and an idler and if he cannot be held down with a dictionary he is looked upon as not worth educating if his parents decide he shall be educated anyway dead or alive or in spite of his being alive the more he is educated the more he wonders why he was born and the more his teachers from behind their dictionaries and the other boys from underneath their dictionaries wonder why he was born while it may be a general principle that the longer a boy wonders why he was born in conditions like these and the longer his teachers and parents wonder the more there is of him it may be observed that a general principle is not of very much comfort to the boy while the process of wondering is going on there seems to be no escape from the process and if while he is being educated he is not allowed to use himself he can hardly be blamed for spending a good deal of his time in wondering why he is not someone else in a half-seeing half-blinded fashion he struggles on if he is obstinate enough he manages to struggle through with his eyes shut sometimes he belongs to a higher kind and opens his eyes and struggles with the average boy the struggle with the school and the church is less vigorous than the struggle at home it is more hopeless a mother is a comparatively simple affair one can either manage a mother or be managed it is merely a matter of time it is soon settled there is something there she is not boundless intangible the school and the church are different but the first fresh breaths of the world tingling in him the youth stands before them they are entirely new to him they are huge immeasurable unaccountable they loom over him a part of the structure of the universe itself a mother can meet one in a door the problem is concentrated the church stretches beyond the sunrise the school is part of the horizon of the earth and what after all is his own life and who is he that he should take account of it out of space out of time out of history they come to him the church and the school they are the assembling of all mankind around his soul each with its cone of ether its desire to control the breath of his life its determination to do his breathing for him to push the cone down over him 
looms above him and above all in sight before he speaks before he is able to speak it is soon over he lies passive and insensible at last as convenient as though he were dead and the church and the school operate upon him they remove as many of his natural organs as they can put in presbyterian ones perhaps or school board ones instead those that cannot be removed are numbed when the time is fulfilled and the youth is cured of enough life at last to like living with the dead and when it is thought he is enough like everyone else to do he is given his degree and sewed up after the sewing up his history is better imagined than described not being interested to himself he is not apt to be very interesting to anyone else and because of his lack of interest in himself he is called the average man the main distinction of every greater or more extraordinary book is that it has been written by an extraordinary man a natural or wild man a man of genius who has never been operated on the main distinction of the man of talent is that he has somehow managed to escape a complete operation it is a matter of common observation in reading biography that in proportion as men have had lasting power in the world there has been something irregular in their education these irregularities whether they happen to be due to overwhelming circumstance or to overwhelming temperament seem to sum themselves up in one fundamental and comprehensive irregularity that penetrates them all namely every powerful mind in proportion to its power either in school or out of it or in spite of it has educated itself the ability that many men have used to avoid being educated is exactly the same ability they have used afterward to move the world with in proportion as they have moved the world they are found to have kept the lead in their education from their earliest years to have had a habit of initiative as well as hospitality to have maintained a creative selective active attitude toward all persons and toward all books that have been brought within range of their lives the top of the bureau principle the experience of being robbed of a story we are about to read by the good friend who cannot help telling how it comes out is an occasional experience in the lives of older people but it sums up the main sensation of life in the career of a child the whole existence of a boy may be said to be a daily almost hourly struggle to escape from being told things it has been found that the best way to emphasize a fact in the mind of a bright boy is to discover some way of not saying anything about it and this is not because human nature is obstinate but because facts have been intended from the beginning of the world to speak for themselves and to speak better than anyone can speak for them when a fact speaks god speaks considering the way that most persons who are talking about the truth see fit to rush in and interrupt him the wonder is not that children grow less and less interested in truth as they grow older but that they are interested in truth at all even lies about the truth the real trouble with most men and women as parents is that they have had to begin life with parents of their own when the child's first memory of god is a father or mother interrupting him he is apt to be under the impression when he grows up that god can only be introduced to his own children by never being allowed to get a word in 
if we as much as see a fact coming toward a child most of us we either run out where the child is and bring him into the house and cry over him or we rush to his side and look anxious and stand in front of the fact and talk to him about it and yet it is doubtful if there has ever been a boy as yet worth mentioning who did not wish we would stand a little more one side let him have it out with things he is very wary if he really amounts to anything of having everything about him prepared for him there has never been a live boy who would not throw a store plaything away in two or three hours for a comparatively imperfect plaything he had made himself he is equally indifferent to a store fact and a boy who does not see through a store god or a store book or a store education sooner than ninety-nine parents out of a hundred and sooner than most synods is not worth bringing up no just or comprehensive principle can be found to govern the reading of books that cannot be made to apply by one who really believes it though in varying degrees to the genius and to the dolt it is a matter of history that a boy of fine creative powers can only be taught a true relation to books through an appeal to his own discoveries but what is being especially contended for and what most needs to be emphasized in current education is the fact that the boy of ordinary creative powers can only be taught to read in the same way by a slower broader and more patient appeal to his own discoveries the boy of no creative powers whatever if he is ever born should not be taught to read at all creation is the essence of knowing and teaching him to read merely teaches him more ways of not knowing it gives him a wider range of places to be a nobody in takes away his last opportunity for thinking of anything that is getting the meaning of anything for himself if a man's heart does not beat for him why substitute a hot water bottle the less a mind is able to do the less it can afford to have anything done for it it will be a great day for education when we all have learned that the genius and the dolt can only be educated at different rates of speed in exactly the same way the trouble with our education now is that many of us do not see that a boy who has been presented with an imitation brain is a deal worse off than a boy who in spite of his teachers has managed to save his real one and has not used it yet it is dangerous to give a program for a principle to those who do not believe in the principle and who do not believe in it instinctively but if a program were to be given it would be something like this it would assume that the best way to do with an uncreative mind is to put the owner of it where his mind will be obliged to create first decide what the owner of the mind most wants in the world second put this thing whatever it may be where the owner of the mind cannot get it unless he uses his mind take pains to put it where he can get it if he does use his mind third lure him on it is education if this principle is properly applied to books there is not a human being living on the earth who will not find himself capable of reading books as far as he goes with his whole mind and his whole body he will read a printed page as eagerly as he lives and he will read it in exactly the same way that he lives with his imagination a boy lives with his imagination every hour of his life except in school the moment he discovers or is allowed to discover that reading a book and living a day are very much alike that they are both parts of the same act and that they are both properly done in the same way 
he will drink up knowledge as job did scorning like water but it is objected that many children are entirely imitative and that the imagination cannot be appealed to with them and that they cut themselves off from creativeness at every point while it is inevitable in the nature of things that many children should be largely imitative there is not a child that does not do some of his imitating in a creative way give the hint to his teachers even in his imitations of where his creativeness would come if it were allowed to his very blunders in imitating point to desires that would make him creative of themselves if followed up some children have many desires in behalf of which they become creative others are creative only in behalf of a few but there is always a single desire in a child's nature through which his creativeness can be called out a boy learns to live to command his body through the desires which make him creative with it hunger and movement and sleep desires for the very vegetables are stirred with and the boy who does not find himself responding to them who can help responding to them does not exist there may be times when a boy has no desire to fill himself with food and when he has no desire to think but he is kept hungry if he is soon found doing both thinking things into his stomach a stomach in the average boy will all but take the part of a brain itself for the time being to avoid being empty if a human being is alive at all there is always at least one desire he can be educated with prodded into creativeness until he learns the habit and the pleasure of it the best qualification for a nurse for a child whose creativeness turns on his stomach is a natural gift for keeping food on the tops of bureaus and shelves just out of reach the best qualification for a teacher is infinite contrivance in high bureaus the applying of the top of the high bureau to all knowledge and to all books is what true education is for it is generally considered a dangerous thing to do to turn a child loose in a library it might fairly be called a dangerous thing to do if it were not much more dangerous not to the same forces that wrought themselves into the books when they were being made can be trusted to gather and play across them on the shelves these forces are the self-propelling and self-healing forces of the creative mood the creative mood protects the books and it protects all who come near the books it protects from the inside it toughens and makes supple parents who cannot trust a boy to face the weather in a library should never let him outdoors trusting a boy to the weather in a library may have its momentary embarrassments but it is immeasurably the shortest and most natural way to bring him into a vital connection with books the first condition of a vital connection with books is that he shall make the connection for himself the relation will be vital in proportion as he makes it himself the fact that he will begin to use his five reading senses by trying to connect in the wrong way or by connecting with the wrong books or parts of books is a reason not for action on the part of parents and teachers but for inspired waiting as a vital relation to books is the most immeasurable outfit for living and the most perfect protection against the dangers of life a boy can have the one point to be borne in mind is not the book but the boy the instinct of curiosity in the boy a boy who has all his good discoveries in books made for him spoiled for him if he has any good material in him will proceed to make bad ones 
the vices would be nearly as safe from interference as the virtues if they were faithfully cultivated in sunday schools or by average teachers in day schools sin itself is uninteresting when one knows all about it the interest of the average young man in many a more important sin today is only kept up by the fact that no one stands by with a book teaching him how to do it whatever the expression original sin may have meant in the first place it means now that we are full of original sin because we are not given a chance to be original in anything else a virtue may be defined as an act so good that a religiously trained youth cannot possibly learn anything more about it a classic is a pleasure hurried into a responsibility a book read by every man before he has anything to read it with a classical author is a man who if he could look ahead could see the generations standing in rows to read his book towing the line to love it would not read it himself any training in the use of books that does not base its whole method of rousing the instinct of curiosity and keeping it aroused is a wholesale slaughter not only of the minds that might live in the books but of the books themselves to ignore the central curiosity of a child's life his natural power of self-discovery in books is to dispense with the force of gravity in books instead of taking advantage of it section six of the lost art of reading by gerald stanley lee this librivox recording is in the public domain book one interferences with the reading habit the third interference the unpopularity of the first person singular the first person a necessary evil great emphasis is being laid at the present time upon the tools that readers ought to have to do their reading with we seem to be living in a reference-book age. Whatever else may be claimed for our own special generation, it stands out as having one inspiration that is quite its own, the inspiration of conveniences. That these conveniences have their place, that one ought to have the best of them, there can be no doubt, but it is very important to bear in mind, particularly in the present public mood, that if one cannot have all of these conveniences, or even the best of them, the one absolutely necessary reference book in reading the masters of literature is one that every man has it is something of a commonplace a rather modest volume with most of us summed up on a tombstone generally easily enough but we are bound to believe after all is said and done that the great masterpiece among reference books for every man the one originally intended by the creator for every man to use is the reference book of his own life we believe that the one direct and necessary thing for a man to do if he is going to be a good reader is to make this reference book his own private edition of it as large and complete as possible everything refers to it whatever his reading is shakespeare and the new york world homer and harper's bazaar victor hugo and the forum babyhood and the bible all refer to it are all alike in making their references when they are really looked up to private editions other editions do not work in proportion as they are powerful in modern life all the books and papers that we have are engaged in the business of going about the world discovering people to themselves unroofing first-person singulars in it getting people to use their own reference books on all life literature is a kind of vast international industry of comparing life we read to look up references in our own souls 
the immortality of homer and the circulation of the latest home journal both conform to this fact and it is equally the secret of the last page of harper's bazaar and of hamlet and of the grave and the monthly lunge of the forum at passing events the difference of appeal may be as wide as the east and the west but the east and the west are in human nature and not in the nature of the appeal the larger selves look themselves up in the greater writers and the smaller selves spell themselves out in the smaller ones it is here we all behold as in some vast reflection or mirage of the reading world our own souls crowding and jostling little and great against the walls of their years seeking to be let out to look out to look over to look up that they may find their possible selves when men are allowed to follow what might be called the forces of nature in the reading world they are seen to read first about themselves second about people they know third about people they want to know fourth god next to their interest in persons is their interest in things first things that they have themselves second things that people they know have third things they want to have fourth things they ought to want to have fifth other things sixth the universe things god has seventh god a scale like this may not be very complimentary to human nature some of us feel that it is appropriate and possibly a little religious to think that it is not but the scale is here it is mere psychological matter of fact it is the way things are made and while it may not be quite complimentary to human nature it seems to be more complimentary to god to believe in spite of appearances that this scale from i to god is made right and should be used as it stands it seems to have been in general use among our more considerable men in the world and among all our great men and among all who have made others great they do not seem to have been ashamed of it they have climbed up frankly on it most of them in full sight of all men from i to god they have claimed that everybody including themselves was identified with god and they have made people believe it it is the few in every generation who have dared to believe in this scale and who have used it who have been the leaders of the rest the measure of a man's being seems to be the swiftness with which his nature runs from the bottom of this scale to the top the swiftness with which he identifies himself says i in all of it the measure of his ability to read on any particular subject is the swiftness with which he runs the scale from the bottom to the top on that subject makes the trip with his soul from his own little eye to god when he has mastered the subject he makes the run almost without knowing it sees it as it is i e identifies himself with god on it the principle is one which reaches under all mastery in the world from the art of prophecy even to the art of politeness though man makes the trip on any subject from the first person out through the second person to the farthest bounds of the third person that is who identifies himself with all men's lives is called the poet or seer the master lover of persons the man who makes the trip most swiftly from his own things to other men's things and to god's things the universe is called the scientist the master lover of things the god is he who identifies his own personal life with all lives and his own things with all men's things who says i forever everywhere the reason that the hebrew bible has had more influence in history than all other literatures combined is that there are fewer emasculated men in it 
the one really fundamental and astonishing thing about the bible is the way that people have of talking about themselves in it no other nation that has ever existed on the earth would ever have thought of daring to publish a book like the bible so far as the plot is concerned the fundamental literary conception it is all the bible comes to practically two or three thousand years of it a long row of people talking about themselves the hebrew nation has been the leading power in history because the hebrew man in spite of all his faults has always had the feeling that god sympathized with him in being interested in himself he has dared to feel identified with god it is the same in all ages not an age but one sees a hebrew in it out under his lonely heaven standing and crying god and i it is the one great spectacle of the soul this little world has seen are not the mightiest faces that come to us flickering out of the dark their faces who can look at the past who does not see who does not always see some mighty hebrew in it singing and struggling with god what is it what else could it possibly be but the hebrew soul like a kind of pageantry down the years between us and god that would ever have made us guess men of the other nations that a god belonged to us or that a god could belong to us and be a god at all have not all the other races each in their turn spawning in the sun and lost in the night vanished because they could not say i before god the nations that are left the great nations of the modern world are but the moral passengers of the hebrews hangers on to the race that can say i i to the nth power the race that has dared to identify itself with god the fact that the hebrew instead of saying god and i has turned it around sometimes and said i and god is neither here nor there in the end it is because the hebrew has kept to the main point has felt related to god the main point a god cares about that he has been the most heroic and athletic figure in human history comes nearer to the god size the rest of the nation sitting about and wondering in the dark have called this thing in the hebrew religious genius if one were try to sum up what religious genius is in the hebrew or to account for the spiritual and material supremacy of the hebrew in history in a single fact it would be the fact that moses their first great leader when he wanted to say it seems to me said the lord said unto moses the hebrews may have written a book that teaches of all others self-renunciation but the way they taught it was self-assertion the bible begins with a meek moses who teaches by saying the lord said unto moses and it comes to its climax in a lowly and radiant man who dies on a cross to say i and the father are one the man jesus seems to have called himself god because he had a divine habit of identifying himself because he had kept on identifying himself with others until the first person and the second person and the third person were as one to him the distinction of the new testament is that it is the one book the world has seen which dispenses with pronouns it is a book that sums up pronouns and numbers singular and plural first person second and third person and all in the one great central pronoun of the universe the very stars speak it we we is a developed i the first person may not be what it ought to be either as a philosophy or an experience but it has been considered good enough to make bibles out of and it does seem as if a good word might occasionally be said for it in modern times 
as if someone ought to be born before long who will give it a certain standing a certain moral respectability once more in human life and in the education of human life it would not seem to be an overstatement that the best possible book to give a child to read at any time is the one that makes the most cross-references at that time to his undeveloped we the art of being anonymous the main difficulty in getting a child to live in the whole of his nature to run the scale from the bottom to the top from i to god is to persuade his parents and teachers and the people who crowd around him to educate him that he must begin at the bottom the unpopularity of the first person singular in current education naturally follows from the disgrace of the imagination in it our typical school is not satisfied with cutting off a boy's imagination about the outer world that lies around him it amputates his imagination at its tap-root it stops a boy's imagination about himself and the issues connections and possibilities of his own life inasmuch as the education of a child his relation to books must be conducted either with reference to evading personality or accumulating it the issue is one that must be squarely drawn from the first beginning at the bottom is found by society at large to be such an inconvenient and painstaking process that the children who are allowed to lay a foundation for personality to say i in its disagreeable stages seems to be confined for the most part to either one or the other of two classes the incurable or the callous the more thorough a child's nature is the more real his processes are the more incurable he is bound to be secretly if he is sensitive and offensively if he is callous in either case the fact is the same the child unconsciously acts on the principle that self-assertion is self-preservation one of the first things that he discovers is that self-preservation is the last thing polite parents desire in a child if he is to be preserved they will preserve him themselves the conspiracy begins in the earliest days the world rolls over him the home and the church and the school and the printed book roll over him the story is the same in all education originally conceived as drawing a boy out becomes a huge elaborate overwhelming scheme for squeezing him in for keeping him squeezed in he is mobbed on every side at schools the teachers crowd round him and say i for him at home his parents say i for him at church the preacher says i for him and when he retreats into the privacy of his own soul and betakes himself to a book the book is a classic and the book says i for him when he says i himself after a few appropriate years he says it in disguised quotation marks if he cannot always avoid it if in some unguarded moment he is particularly alive about something and the i comes out on it society expects him to be ashamed of it at least to avoid the appearance of not being ashamed of it if he writes he is desired to say we sometimes he shades himself off into the present writer sometimes he capitulates in bare initials there are very few people who do not live in quotation marks most of their lives they would die in them and go to heaven in them if they could nine times out of ten it is someone else's heaven they want to go to the number of people who would know what to do or how to act in this world or the next without their quotation marks on is getting more limited every year and yet one could not very well imagine a world more prostrate than this one is before a man without quotation marks it dotes on personality it spends hundreds of years at a time in yearning for a great man but it wants its great man finished 
it is never willing to pay what he costs it is particularly unwilling to pay what he costs as it goes along the great man as a boy has had to pay for himself the bare feat of keeping out of quotation marks has cost him generally more than he thought he was worth and has had to be paid in advance there is a certain sense in which it is true that every boy at least at the point where he is especially alive is a kind of great man in miniature has the same experience that is in growing many a boy who has been regularly represented to himself as a monster a curiosity of selfishness and who has believed it has had occasion to observe when he grew up that some of his selfishness was real selfishness and that some of it was life the things he was selfish with he finds as he grows older are the things he has been making a man out of as a boy however he does not get much inkling of this he finds he is being brought up in a world where boys who so little know how to play with their things that they give them away and are pointed out to him as generous and where boys who are so bored with their own minds that they prefer other people's are considered modest if he knew in the days when models are being pointed out to him that the time would soon come in the world for boys like these when it would make little difference either to the boys themselves or to anyone else whether they were generous or modest or not it would make his education happier in the meantime in his disgrace he does not guess what a good example to models he is very few other people guess it the general truth that when a man has nothing to be generous with and nothing to be modest about even his virtues are superfluous is realized by society at large in a pleasant helpless fashion in its bearing on the man but its bearing on the next man on education on the problem of human development is almost totally overlooked the youth who grasps at everything in sight to have his experience with it who cares more for the thing than he does for the person it comes from and more for his experience with the thing than he does for the thing is by no means an inspiring spectacle while this process is going on and he is naturally in perpetual disgrace but in proportion as they are wise our best educators are aware that in all probability the same youth will wield more spiritual power in the world and do more good in it than nine or ten pleasantly smoothed and adjustable persons his boy faults are his man virtues wrong side out there are very few lives of powerful men in modern times that do not illustrate this the men who do not believe it who do not approve of illustrating it have illustrated it the most devoted their lives to it it would be hard to find a man of any special importance in modern biography who has not been indebted to the sins of his youth it is the things i ought not to have done see page ninety three one seventy nine three twenty nine says the average autobiography which have been the making of me they were all good things for me to do see page five twenty six six thirty two seven twenty but i did not think so when i did them neither did anyone else studying shakespeare in the theatre in the theological seminary and taking walks instead of examinations in college says the biography of beecher between the lines meant definite moral degeneration to me i did habitually what i could not justify at the time either to myself or to others and i have had to make up since for all the moral degeneration item by item but the things i got with the degeneration when i got it habits of imagination and expression headway of personality are the things that have given me all my inspirations for being moral since 
what love of liberty i have wendell phillips seems to say i got from loving my own it is the boy who loves his liberty so much that he insists on having it to do wrong with as well as right who in the long run gets the most right done the basis of character is moral experiment and almost all the men who have discovered different or beautiful or right habits of life for men have discovered them by doing wrong long enough the ice is thin at this point gentle reader for many of us perhaps but it has held up our betters the fact of the matter seems to be that a man's conscience in this world especially if it is an educated one or borrowed from his parents can get as much in his way as anything else there is no doubt that the great spirit prefers to lead a man by his conscience but if it cannot be done if a man's conscience has no consequences for being led he leads him against his conscience the doctrine runs along the edge of a precipice like all the best ones but if there is one gift rather than another to be prayed for in this world it is the ability to recognize the crucial moment that sometimes comes in a human life the moment when the almighty himself gets a man against his conscience to do right it seems to be the way that some consciences are meant to grow by trying wrong things on a little thousands of inferior people can be seen every day stumbling over their sins to heaven while the rest of us are holding back with our virtues it has been intimated from time to time in this world that all men are sinners inasmuch as things are arranged so that men can sin in doing right things and sin in doing wrong ones both they can hardly miss it the real religion of every age seems to have looked a little askance at perfection even at purity has gone its way in a kind of fine straightforwardness has spent itself in an inspired blundering in progressive noble culminating moral experiment the basis for a great character seems to be the capacity for intense experience with the character one already has so far as most of us can judge experience in proportion as it has been conclusive and economical has had to be literally or with one's imagination in the first person the world has never really wanted yet in spite of appearances its own way with a man it wants the man it is what he is that concerns it all that it asks of him and all that he has to give is the surplus of himself the trouble with our modern fashion of substituting the second person or the third person for the first in a man's education is that it takes his capacity for intense experience of himself his chance for having a surplus of himself entirely away egoism and society that the unpopularity of the first person singular is honestly acquired and heartily deserved it would be useless to deny everyone who has ever had a first person singular for a longer or shorter period in his life knows that it is a disagreeable thing and that everyone else knows it in nine cases out of ten at least and about nine-tenths of the time during its development the fundamental question does not concern itself with the first person singular being agreeable or disagreeable but with what to do with it it being the necessary evil that it is it seems to be a reasonable position that what should be objected to in the interests of society is not egoism a man's being interested in himself but the lack of egoism a man's having a self that does not include others the trouble would seem to be not that people use their own private special monosyllable overmuch but that there is not enough of it that nine times out of ten when they write i it should be written small i in the face of the 
political objection the objection of the state to the first person singular the egoist defends every man's reading for himself as follows any book that is allowed to come between a man and himself is doing him and all who know him a public injury the most important and interesting fact about a man to other people is his attitude toward himself it determines his attitude toward everyone else the most fundamental question of every state is what is each man's attitude in this state toward himself what can it be a man's expectancy toward himself so far as the state is concerned is the moral centre of citizenship it determines how much of what he expects he will expect of himself and how much he will expect of others and how much of books the man who expects too much of himself develops into the headlong and dangerous citizen who threatens society with his strength goes elbowing about in it insisting upon living other people's lives for them as well as his own the man who expects too much of others threatens society with weariness he is always expecting other people to do his living for him the man who expects too much of books lives neither in himself nor in anyone else the career of the paper doll is open to him history seems to be always taking turns with these three temperaments whether in art or religion or public affairs the overmanned the undermanned and the overread the tyrant the tramp and the paper doll between the man who keeps things in his own hands and the man who does not care to and the man who has no hands the state has a hard time nothing could be more important to the existence of the state than that every man in it shall expect just enough of himself and just enough of others and just enough of the world of books living is adjusting these worlds to one another the central fact about society is the way it helps a man with himself the society which cuts a man off from himself cuts him still farther off from everyone else a man's reading in the first person enough to have a first person enough to be identified with himself is one of the defenses of society i plus i that small i plus capital i equals we the most natural course for a human being who is going to identify himself with other people is to begin by practicing on himself if he has not succeeded in identifying himself with himself he makes very trying work of the rest of us a man who has not learned to say i and mean something very real by it has it not in his power without dullness or impertinence to say you to any living creature if a man has not learned to say you if he has not taken hold of himself interpreted and adjusted himself to those who are face to face with him the wider and more general privilege of saying they of judging any part of mankind or any temperament in it should be kept away from him it is only as one has experienced a temperament has in some mood of one's life said i in that temperament that one has the outfit for passing an opinion on it or the outfit for living with it or for being in the same world with it there are times it must be confessed when christ's command that every man shall love his neighbor as himself seems inconsiderate there are some of us who cannot help feeling when we see a man coming along toward us proposing to love us a little while the way he loves himself that our permission might have been asked if there is one inconvenience rather than another in our modern christian society it is the general unprotected sense one has in it the number of people there are about in it 
let loose by sunday school teachers and others who are allowed to go around loving other people the way they love themselves a codicil or at least an explanatory footnote to the golden rule in the general interest of neighbors would be widely appreciated how shall a man dare to love his neighbor as himself until he loves himself has a self that he really loves a self he can really love and loves it there is no more sad or constant spectacle that this modern world has to face than the spectacle of the man who has overlooked himself bustling about in it trying to give honor to other people the man who has never been able to help himself hurrying anxious to and fro as if he could help someone else it is not too much to say charity begins at home everything does the one person who has the necessary training for being an altruist is the alert egoist who does not know he is an altruist his service to society is a more intense and comprehensive selfishness he would be cutting acquaintance with himself not to render it when he says i he means we and the second and third persons are grown dim to him an absolutely perfect virtue is the conveying of a man's self with a truth to others the virtues that do not convey anything are cheap and common enough favors can be had almost any day from anybody if one is not too particular and so can blank staring self-sacrifices one feels like putting up a sign over the door of one's life with some people let no man do me a favor except he do it as a self-indulgence even kindness wears out shows through becomes impertinent if it is not a part of selfishness it may be that there are certain rudimentary virtues the outer form of which had better be maintained in the world whether they can be maintained spiritually that is thoroughly and egotistically or not if my enemy who lives under the hill will continue to not murder me i desire him to continue whether he enjoys not murdering me or not but it is no credit to him except in some baldly negative fashion as this however it is literally true that a man's virtues are of little account to others except as they are of account to him and except he enjoys them as much as his vices the first really important shock that comes to young man's religious sentiment in this world is the number of bored-looking people around doing right an absolutely substantial and perfect love is transfigured selfishness it is no mere playing with words to say this nor is it substituting a comfortable and pleasant doctrine for a strenuous altruism if it were as light and graceful an undertaking to have enough selfishness to go around to live in the whole of a universe like this as it is to slip out of even living in one's self in it like a mere shadow or altruist egoism were superficial enough as it is egoism being terribly or beautifully alive so far as it goes is now and always has been and always must be the running gear of the spiritual world egoism socialized the first person is what the second and third persons are made out of altruism as opposed to egoism except in a temporary sense is a contradiction in terms unless a man has a life to identify other lives with a self which is the symbol through which he loves all other selves and all other experiences he is selfish in the true sense with all our galileos agassizes and shakespeare's the universe has not grown in its countless centuries it has not been getting higher and wider over us since the human race began it is not a larger universe 
it is lived in by larger men more all-absorbing all-identifying and selfish men it is a universe in which a human being is duly born given place with such a self as he happens to have and he is expected to grow up to it barring a certain amount of wear and tear and a few minor rearrangements on the outside it is the same universe that it was in the beginning and is now and always will be quite the same universe whether a man grows up to it or not the larger universe is not one that comes with the telescope it comes with the larger self the self that by reaching farther and farther in reaches farther and farther out it is as if the sky were a splendor that grew by night out of his own heart the tent of his love of god spreading its roof over the nature of things the greater distance knowledge reaches the more it has to be personal because it has to be spiritual the one thing that it is necessary to do in any part of the world to make any branch of knowledge or deed of mercy a living and eager thing is to get men to see how direct its bearing is upon themselves the man who does not feel concerned when the armenians are massacred thousands of miles away because there is a sea between us is not a different man in kind from the man who does feel concerned the difference is one of degree it is a matter of area in living the man who does feel concerned has a larger self he sees further feels the cry as the cry of his own children he has learned the oneness and is touched with the closeness of the great family of the world the autobiography of beauty but the brunt of the penalty of the unpopularity of the first person singular in modern society falls upon the individual the hard part of it for a man who has not the daily habit of being a companion to himself is his own personal private sense of emptiness of missing things all the universe gets itself addressed to someone else a great showy heartless pantomime it rolls over him beckoning with its nights and days and winds and faces always beckoning but to someone else all that seems to be left to him in a universe is a kind of keeping up appearances in it a looking as if he lived a hurrying dishonest trying to forget he dare not sit down and think he spends his strength in racing with himself to get away from himself and those greatest days of all in human life the days when men grow old world gentle and still and deep before their god are the days he dreads the most he can only look forward to old age as the time when a man sits down with his lie at last and day after day and night after night faces infinite and eternal loneliness in his own heart it is the man who cuts acquaintance with himself who dares to be lonely with himself who dares the supreme daring in this world he and his loneliness are hermetically sealed up together in infinite time infinite space not a great man of all that have been not a star or flower not even a great book that can get at him it is the nature of a great book that in proportion as it is beautiful it makes itself helpless before a human soul like music or poetry or painting it lays itself radiant and open before all that lies before it to everything or to nothing whatever it may be it makes the direct appeal before the days and years of a man's life it stands is not this so it says it never says less than this it does not know how to say more a bare and trivial book stops with what it says itself 
a great book depends now and forever upon what it makes a man say back and if he does not say anything if he does not bring anything to it to say nothing out of his own observation passion experience to be called out by the passing words upon the page the most living book in its board and paper prison is a dead and helpless thing before a dead soul the helplessness of the dead soul lies upon it perhaps there is no more important distinction between a great book and a little book than this that the great book is always a listener before a human life and the little book takes nothing for granted of a reader it does not expect anything of him the littler it is the less it expects and the more it explains nothing that is really great and living explains living is enough if greatness does not explain by being great nothing smaller can explain it god never explains he merely appeals to every man's first person singular religion is not what he has told to men it is what he has made men wonder about until they have been determined to find out the stars have never been published with footnotes the sun with its huge soft shining on people kept on with the shining even when the people thought it was doing so trivial and undignified and provincial a thing as to spend its whole time going around them and around their little earth that they might have light on it perchance and be kept warm the moon has never gone out of its way to prove that it is not made of green cheese and this present planet we are allowed the use of from year to year which was so little observed for thousands of generations that all the people on it supposed it was flat made no answer through the centuries it kept on burying them one by one and waited like a work of genius or a masterpiece in proportion as a thing is beautiful whether of man or god it has this heroic helplessness about it with the passing soul or generation of souls if people are foolish it can but appeal from one dear pitiful fool to another until enough of us have died to make it time for a wise man again history is a series of crises like this in which once in so often men who say i have crossed the lives of mortals have puzzled the world enough to be remembered in it like socrates or been abused by it enough to make it love them forever like christ the greatest revelation of history is the patience of the beauty in it and truth can always be known by the fact that it is the only thing in the wide world that can afford to wait a true book does not go about advertising itself huckstering for souls arranging its greatness small enough it waits sometimes for twenty years it waits for us sometimes for forty sometimes sixty and then when the time is fulfilled and we come at length and lay before it the burden of the blind and blundering years we have tried to live it does little with us after all but to bring these same years singing and crying and struggling back to us that through their shadowy doors we may enter at last the confessional of the human heart and cry out there or stammer or whisper or sing there the prophecy of our own lives dead words out of dead dictionaries the book brings to us it is a great book because it is a listening book because it makes the unspoken to speak and the dead to live in it to the vanished pen and the yellowed paper of the man who writes to us thy soul and mine gentle reader shall call back this is the truth if a book has force in it whatever its literary form may be or however disguised it is biography appealing to biography if a book has great force in it it is autobiography appealing to autobiography the great book is always a confession a moral adventure with its reader an incredible confidence
End of section six. Section seven of The Lost Art of Reading by Gerald Stanley Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book one Interferences with the Reading Habit. The fourth interference the habit of not letting oneself go the country boy in literature let not any parliament member says carlyle ask of the present editor what is to be done editors are not here to say how which is both ungracious and tantalizingly elusive suggests a professor of literature who has been recently criticizing the nineteenth century this criticism as a part of an estimate of thomas carlyle is not only a criticism on itself and an autobiography besides but it sums up in a more or less characteristic fashion perhaps what might be called the ultra-academic attitude in reading the ultra-academic attitude may be defined as the attitude of sitting down and being told things and of expecting all other persons to sit down and be told things and of judging all authors principles men and methods accordingly if the universe were what in most libraries and clubs today it is made to seem a kind of infinite institution of learning a lecture-room on a larger scale and if all the men in it instead of doing and singing in it had spent their days in delivering lectures to it there would be every reason in a universe arranged for lectures why we should exact of those who give them that they should make the truth plain to us so plain that there would be nothing left for us to do with truth but to read it in the printed book and then analyze the best analysis of it and die it seems to be quite generally true of those who have been the great masters of literature however that in proportion as they have been great they have proved to be as ungracious and tantalizingly elusive as the universe itself they have refused without exception to bear down on the word how they have almost never told men what to do and have confined themselves to saying something that would make them do it and make them find a way to do it this something that they have said like the something that they have lived has come to them they know not how and it has gone from them they know not how sometimes not even when it has been incommunicable incalculable infinite the subconscious self of each of them the voice beneath the voice calling down the corridors of the world if a boy from the country were to stand in a city street before the window of a shop gazing into it with open mouth he would do more in five or six minutes to measure the power and caliber of the passing men and women than almost any device that could be arranged ninety-five out of a hundred of them probably would smile a superior smile at him and hurry on out of the remaining five four would look again and pity him one perhaps would honor and envy him the boy who in a day like the present one is still vital enough to forget how he looks in enjoying something is not only a rare and refreshing spectacle but he is master of the most important intellectual and moral superiority a boy can be master of and if in spite of teachers and surroundings he can keep this superiority long enough or until he comes to be a man he shall be the kind of man whose very faults shall be remembered better and cherished more by a doting world than the virtues of the rest of us the most important fact perhaps the only important fact about james boswell the country boy of literature 
is that whatever may have been his limitations he had the most important gift that life can give to a man the gift of forgetting himself in it the fleet street of letters smiling at him and jeering by him who does not always see james boswell completely lost to the street gaping at the soul of samuel johnson as if it were the show window of the world as if to be allowed to look at a soul like this were almost to have a soul oneself boswell's life of johnson is a classic because james boswell had the classic power in him of unconsciousness to book laborers college employees analysis hands of whatever kind his book is a standing notice that the prerogative of being immortal is granted by man even to a fool if he has the grace not to know it for that matter even if the fool knows he is a fool if he cares more about his subject than he cares about not letting anyone else know it he is never forgotten the world cannot afford to leave such a fool out is it not a world in which there is not a living man of us who does not cherish in his heart a little secret like this of his own we are bound to admit that the main difference between james boswell and the rest consists in the fact that james boswell found something in the world so much more worth living for than not letting the common secret out that he lived for it and like all the other great naives he will never get over living for it even allowing that boswell's consistent and unfailing motive in cultivating samuel johnson was vanity this very vanity of boswell's has more genius in it than johnson's vocabulary and the important and inspiring fact remains that james boswell a flagrantly commonplace man in every single respect by the law of letting himself go has taken his stand forever in english literature as the one commonplace man in it who has produced a work of genius the main quality of a man of genius his power of sacrificing everything to his main purpose belonged to him he was not only willing to seem the kind of fool he was but he did not hesitate to seem several kinds that he was not to fulfil his main purpose that samuel johnson might be given the ponderous and gigantic and looming look that a samuel johnson ought to have boswell painted himself into his picture with more relentlessness than any other author that can be called to mind except three or four similarly commonplace and similarly inspired and self-forgetful persons in the new testament there has never been any other biography in england with the single exception of pepys in which the author has so completely lost himself in his subject if the author of johnson's life had written his book with the inspiration of not being laughed at which is the inspiration that nine out of ten who love to laugh are likely to write with james boswell would never have been heard of and the burly figure of samuel johnson would be a blur behind a dictionary it may be set down as one of the necessary principles of the reading habit that no true and vital reading is possible except as the reader possesses and employs the gift of letting himself go it is a gift that william shakespeare and james boswell and elijah and charles lamb and a great many other happy but unimportant people have had in common no man of genius a man who puts his best and his most unconscious self into his utterance can be read or listened to or interpreted for one moment without it except from those who bring to him the greeting of their own unconscious selves he hides himself he gives himself only to those with whom unconsciousness is a daily habit with whom the joy of letting oneself go is one of the great resources of life this joy is back of every great act and every great deep 
appreciation in the world and it is the charm and delight of the smaller ones on its higher levels it is called genius and inspiration in religion it is called faith it is the primal energy both of art and religion probably only the man who has very little would be able to tell what faith is as a basis of art or religion but we have learned some things that it is not we know that faith is not a dead lift of the brain a supreme effort either for god or for ourselves it is the soul giving itself up finding itself feeling itself drawn to its own into infinite space face to face with strength it is the supreme swinging free of the spirit the becoming a part of the running gear of things faith is not an act of the imagination to the man who knows it it is infinite fact the infinite crowding of facts the drawing of the man's self upward and outward where he is surrounded with the infinite man's self perhaps a man can make himself not believe he can not make himself believe he can only believe by letting himself go by trusting the force of gravity and the law of space around him faith is the universe flowing silently implacably through his soul he has given himself up to it in the tiniest noisiest noon his spirit is flooded with the stars he is let out to the boundaries of heaven and the night sky bears him up in the heat of the day in the presence of a great work of art a work of inspiration or faith there is no such thing as appreciation without letting oneself go the subconscious self the criticism of carlyle's remark editors are not here to say how that it is ungracious and tantalizingly elusive is a fair illustration of the mood to which the habit of analysis leads its victims the explainer cannot let himself go the puttering love of explaining and the need of explaining dog his soul at every turn of thought or thought of having a thought he not only puts a microscope to his eyes to know with but his eyes have ingrown microscopes the microscope has become a part of his eyes he cannot see anything without putting it on a slide and when his microscope will not focus on it and it cannot be reduced and explained he explains that it is not there the man of genius on the other hand with whom truth is an experience instead of a specimen has learned that the probabilities are that the more impossible it is to explain a truth the more truth there is in it in so far as the truth is an experience to him he is not looking for slides he will not mount it as a specimen and he is not interested in seeing it explained or focused he lives with it in his own heart in so far as he possesses it and he looks at it with a telescope for a greater part which he cannot possess the microscope is perpetually mislaid he has the experience itself and the one thing he wants to do with it is to convey it to others he does this by giving himself up to it the truth having become a part of him by his thus giving himself up it becomes a part of his reader by his readers giving himself up reading a work of genius is one man's unconsciousness greeting another man's no author of the highest class can possibly be read without this mutual exchange of unconsciousness he cannot be explained he cannot explain himself and he cannot be enjoyed appreciated or criticized by those who expect him to spiritual things are spiritually discerned that is experienced things are discerned by experience they are ungracious and tantalizingly elusive 
when the man who has a little talent tells a truth he tells the truth so ill that he is obliged to tell how to do it the artist on the other hand having given himself up to the truth almost always tells it as if he were listening to it as if he were being borne up by it as by some great delight even while he speaks to us it is the power of the artist's truth when he writes like this that it shall haunt his reader as it has haunted him he lives with it and is haunted by it day after day whether he wants to be or not and when a human being is obliged to live with a burning truth inside of him every day of his life he will find a how for it he will find some way of saying it of getting it outside of him of doing it if only for the common and obvious reason that it burns the heart out of a man who does not if the truth is really in a man a truth to be done he finds out how to do it as a matter of self-preservation the average man no doubt will continue now as always to consider carlyle's editors are not here to say how ungracious and tantalizingly elusive he demands of every writer not only that he shall write the truth for every man but that he shall practically read it for him that is tell him how to read it the best part of reading it it is by this explaining the truth too much by making it small enough for small people that so many lies have been made out of it the gist of the matter seems to be that if the spirit of the truth does not inspire a man to some more eager way of finding out how to do a truth than asking some other man how to do it it must be some other spirit the way out for the explotorating or weak man does not consist in the scientists or the commentators how or the artists how or in any other strain of helping the ground to hold one up it consists in the power of letting oneself go to say nothing of appreciation of power criticism of power is impossible without letting oneself go criticism which is not the faithful remembering and reporting of an unconscious mood is not worthy of being called criticism at all a critic cannot find even the faults of a book who does not let himself go in it and there is not a living man who can expect to write a criticism of a book until he has given himself a chance to have an experience with it to write his criticism with the larger part of the professional criticism of the ages that are past has proved worthless to us because the typical professional critic has generally been a man who professes not to let himself go and who is proud of it if it were not for the occasional possibility of his being stunned by a book made unconscious by it the professional critic of the lesser sort would never say anything of interest to us at all and even if he did being a maimed and defective conscious person the evidence that he was stunned is likely to be of more significance than anything he may say about the book that stunned him or about the way he felt when he was being stunned having had very little practice in being unconscious the bare fact is all that he can remember about it the unconsciousness of a person who has long lost the habit of unconsciousness is apt to be a kind of groping stupor or deadness at its best and not as with the artist a state of being a way of being incalculably alive and of letting in infinite life it is a small joy that is not unconscious the man who knows he is reading when he has a book in his hands does not know very much about books people who always know what time it is who always know exactly where they are and exactly how they look have it not in their power to read a great book 
the book that comes to the reader as a great book is always one that shares with him the infinite and the eternal in himself there is a time to know what time it is and there is a time not to and there are many places small enough to know where they are the book that knows what time it is in every sentence will always be read by the clock but the great book the book with infinite vistas in it shall not be read by men with a rim of time around it the place of it is unmeasured and there is no sound that men can make which shall tick in that place the organic principle of inspiration letting oneself go is but a half principle however to do one's reading with the other half consists in getting oneself together again in proportion as we truly appreciate what we read we find ourselves playing at being boswell to a book and being johnson to it by turns the vital reader lets himself go and collects himself as the work before him demands there are some books where it is necessary to let oneself go from beginning to end there are others where a man may sit as he sits at a play being himself between acts or at proper intervals when the author lets down the curtain and being translated the rest of the time our richest moods are those in which as we look back upon them we seem to have been impressing impressionable creative and receptive at the same time the alternating currents of these moods are so swift that they seem simultaneous and the immeasurable swiftness with which they pass from one to the other is the soul's instinctive method of kindling itself the very act of inspiration sometimes the subconscious self has it all its own way with us and the subconscious self is crowded to the horizon's edge like northern lights still playing in the distance but the result is the same the dim presence of one of these moods in the other when one's power is least effective and the gradual alternating of the currents of the moods as power grows more effective in the higher states of power the moods are seen alternating with increasing heat and swiftness until in the highest state of power of all they are seen in their mutual glow and splendor working as one mood creating miracles the orator and the listener the writer and the reader in proportion as they become alive to one another come into the same spirit the spirit of mutual listening and utterance at the very best and in the most inspired mood the reader reads as if he were a reader and writer both and the writer writes as if he were a writer and reader both while it is necessary in the use and development of power that all varieties and combinations of these moods should be familiar experiences with the artist and with the reader of the artist it remains as the climax and ideal of all energy and beauty in the human soul that these moods shall be found alternating very swiftly to all appearances together the artist's command of this alternating current the swiftness with which he modulates these moods into one another is the measure of his power the violinist who plays best is the one who sings the most things together in his playing he listens to his bow to the heart of his audience and to the soul of the composer all at once his instrument sings a singing that blends them together the effect of their being together is called art the effect of their being together is produced by the fact that they are together that they are born and living and dying together in the man himself while the strings are singing to us they are the spirit within the strings his letting himself go to them his gathering himself out of them his power to receive and create at once is the secret of the effect he produces 
the power to be receptive and creative by turns is only obtained by constant and daily practice and when the modulating of one of these moods into the other becomes a swift and unconscious habit of life what is called temperament in an artist is attained at last and inspiration is a daily occurrence it is as hard for such a man to keep from being inspired as it is for the rest of us to make ourselves inspired he has to go out of his way to avoid inspiration in proportion as this principle is recognized and allowed free play in the habits that obtain amongst men who know books their habits will be inspired habits books will be read and lived in the same breath and books that have been lived will be written the most serious menace in the present epidemic of analysis in our colleges is not that it is teaching men to analyze masterpieces until they are dead to them but that it is teaching men to analyze their own lives until they are dead to themselves when the process of education is such that it narrows the area of unconscious thinking and feeling in a man's life it cuts him off from his kinship with the gods from his habit of being unconscious enough of what he has to enter into the joy of what he has not the best that can be said of such an education is that it is a patient painstaking laborious training in locking oneself up it dooms a man to himself the smallest part of himself and walls him out of the universe he comes to its doorways one by one the shining of them falls at first on him as it falls on all of us he sees the shining of them and hastens to them one by one they are shut in his face his soul is damned is sentenced to perpetual consciousness of itself what is there that he can do next turning round and round inside himself learning how little worth while it is there is but one fate left open to such a man a blind and desperate lunge into the roar of life he cannot see for facts the usual lhd phd fate if he piles around him the huge hollow sounding outsides of things in the universe that have lived bones of soul matter of bodies skeletons of lives that men have lived who shall blame him he wonders why they have lived why anyone lives and if when he has wondered long enough why anyone lives we choose to make him the teacher of the young that the young also may wonder why any one lives why should we call him to account he cannot but teach what he has what has been given him and we have but ourselves to think that as every radiant june comes round diplomas for ennui are being handed out thousands of them to specially favored children through all this broad and glorious land end of section seven Section 8 of The Lost Art of Reading by Gerald Stanley Lee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fifth Interference The Habit of Analysis. If Shakespeare Came to Chicago. It is one of the supreme literary excellences of the Bible that, until the other day almost, it had never occurred to anyone that it is literature at all it has been read by men and women and children and priests and popes and kings and slaves and the dying of all ages and it has come to them not as a book but as if it were something happening to them it has come to them as nights and mornings come and sleep and death as one of the great simple infinite experiences of human life it has been the habit of the world to take the greatest works of art 
like the greatest works of god in this simple and straightforward fashion as great experiences if a masterpiece really is a masterpiece and reigns and shines its instincts on us as masterpieces should we do not think whether it is literary or not any more than we gaze on mountains and stop to think how sublimely scientific raptly geological and logically chemical they are these things are true about mountains and have their place but it is the nature of a mountain to insist upon its own place to be an experience first and to be as scientific and geological and chemical as it pleases afterward it is the nature of anything powerful to be an experience first and to appeal to experience when we have time or when the experience is over a mountain or a masterpiece can be analyzed the worst part of it but we cannot make a masterpiece by analyzing it and a mountain has never been appreciated by pounding it into trap quartz and conglomerate and it still holds good as a general principle that making a man appreciate a mountain by pounding it takes nearly as long as making the mountain and it is not nearly so worth while not many years ago in one of our journals of the more literary sort there appeared a few directions from chicago university to the late john keats on how to write an ode to a nightingale these directions were from the head of a department who in a previous paper in the same journal had rewritten the ode to a grecian urn the main point the head of the department made with regard to the nightingale was that it was not worth rewriting the ode to the nightingale says he offers me no such temptation there is almost nothing in it that properly belongs to the subject treated the faults of the grecian urn are such as the poet himself under wise criticism see catalogue of chicago university might easily have removed the faults of the nightingale are such that they cannot be removed they are in here in the idea and structure the head of the department dwells at length upon the hopeless fortune of the poem expressing his regret that it can never be retrieved after duly analyzing what he considers the poem's leading thought he regrets that a poet like john keats should go so far apropos of a nightingale as to sigh in his immortal stanzas for something which whatever it may be is nothing short of a dead drunk one hears the soul of keats from out its eternal italy is there no one near to help me no fair dawn of life from charitable voice no sweet saying to set my dull and saddened spirit playing the head of the department goes on and the lines still wouldst thou sing and i have ears in vain to thy high requiem become a sod are passed through analysis what the fitness is he says or what the poetic or other effectiveness of suggesting that the corpse of a person who has ceased upon the midnight still has ears only to add that it has them in vain i cannot pretend to understand one of a great many other things that the head of the department does not pretend to understand it is probably with the same outfit of not pretending to understand that for the edification of the merely admiring mind the ode to a grecian urn was rewritten to keats lines o attic shape fair attitude with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought 
with forest branches and the trodden weed thou silent form dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity cold pastoral when old age shall this generation waste thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours a friend to man to whom thou sayest beauty is truth truth beauty that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know he makes various corrections offering as a substitute conclusion to the poet's song the following outburst preaching this wisdom with thy cheerful mien possessing beauty thou possessest all pause at that goal not farther from thy quest it would not be just to present the present state of academic instruction in literature to illustrate it by such an extreme instance as this of the damage the educated mind debauched with analysis is capable of doing to the reading habit it is probable that a large proportion of the teachers of literature in the united states both out of their sense of john keats and out of respect to themselves would have publicly resented this astonishing exhibit of the extreme literary academic mind in a prominent journal had they not suspected that its editor having discovered a literary academic mind that could take itself as seriously as this had deliberately brought it out as a spectacle it could do no harm to keats certainly or to any one else and would afford an infinite deal of amusement the journal argued to let a mind like this clatter down a column to oblivion so it did it was taken by all concerned teachers critics and observers alike as one of the more interesting literary events of the season unfortunately however entertainments of this kind have a very serious side to them it is one thing to smile at an individual when one knows that standing where he does he stands by himself and another to smile at an individual when one knows that he is not standing by himself that he is a type that there must be a great many others like him or he would not be standing where he does at all when a human being is seen taking his stand over his own soul in public print summing up its emptiness there and gloating over it we are in the presence of a disheartening fact it can be covered up however and in what on the whole is it such a fine true ringing hearty old world as this it need not be made much of but when we find that a mind like this has been placed at the head of a department of poetry in a great representative american university the last thing that should be done with it is to cover it up the more people know where the analytical mind is today where it is getting to be and the more they think what its being there means the better the signs of the times the destiny of education and the fate of literature are all involved in a fact like this the mere possibility of having the analyzing grinding mind engaged in teaching a spontaneous art in a great educational institution would be of great significance the fact that it is actually there and that no particular comment is excited by its being there is significant it betrays not only what the general national academic attitude toward literature is but that that attitude has become habitual that it is taken for granted one would be inclined to suppose looking at the matter abstractly that all students and teachers of literature 
would take it for granted that the practice of making a dispassionate criticism of a passion would be a dangerous practice for any vital and spontaneous nature certainly the last kind of practice that a student of the art of poetry that is the art of literature in the essential sense would wish to make himself master of the first item in a critic's outfit for criticizing a passion is having one the fact that this is not regarded as an axiom in our current education in books is a very significant fact it goes with another significant fact the assumption in most courses of literature as at present conducted that a little man that is a man incapable of a great passion who is not even able to read a book with a great passion in it can somehow teach other people to read it it is not necessary to deny that analysis occasionally plays a valuable part in bringing a pupil to a true method and knowledge of literature but unless the analysis is inspired by nothing can be more dangerous to a pupil under his thirtieth year even for the shortest period of time or more likely to move him over to the farthest confines of the creative life or more certain if continued long enough to set him forever outside all power or possibility of power either in the art of literature or in any of the other arts the first objection to the analysis of one of shakespeare's plays as ordinarily practiced in courses of literature is that it is of doubtful value to nine hundred and ninety nine pupils in a thousand if they do it the second is that they cannot do it the analyzing of one of shakespeare's plays requires more of a commonplace pupil than shakespeare required of himself the apology that is given for the analyzing method is that the process of analyzing a work of shakespeare's will show the pupil how shakespeare did it and that by seeing how shakespeare did it he will see how to do it himself in the first place analysis will not show how shakespeare did it and in the second place if it does it will show that he did not do it by analysis in the third place to say nothing of not doing it by analysis if he had analyzed it before he did it he could not have analyzed it afterward in the literal and modern sense in the fourth place even if shakespeare were able to do his work by analyzing it before he did it it does not follow that undergraduate students can a man of genius with all his onset of natural passion his natural power of letting himself go could doubtless do more analyzing both before and after his work than anyone else without being damaged by it what shall be said of the folly of trying to teach men of talent and the mere pupils of men of talent by analysis by a method that is which even if it succeeds in doing what it tries to do can only at the very best reveal to the pupil the roots of his instincts before they have come up and why is it that our courses of literature may be seen assuming today on every hand almost without the exception that by teaching men to analyze their own inspirations the inspirations they have and teaching them to analyze the inspirations of other men inspirations they can never have we are somehow teaching them english literature it seems to have been overlooked while we are all analytically falling at shakespeare's feet that shakespeare did not become shakespeare by analytically falling at anyone's feet not even at his own and that the most important difference between being a shakespeare and being 
an analyzer of shakespeare is that with the man shakespeare no submitting of himself to the analysis gymnast would ever have been possible and with the students of shakespeare as students go and if they are caught young enough the habit of analysis is not only a possibility but a sleek industrious and complacent certainty after a little furtive looking backward perhaps and a few tremblings and doubts they shall all be seen almost to a man offering their souls to moloch as though the not having a soul and not missing it were the one final and consummate triumph that literary culture could bring flocks of them can be seen with the shining in their faces year after year term after term almost anywhere on this civilized globe doing this very thing doing it under the impression that they are learning something and not until the shining in their faces is gone will they be under the impression that they have learned it whatever it is and that they are educated the fact that the analytic mind is establishing itself in a greater or lesser degree as the sentinel in college life of the entire creative literature of the world is a fact with many meanings in it it means not only that there are a great many more minds like it in literature but that a great many other minds nearly all college educated minds are being made like it it means that unless the danger is promptly faced and acted upon the next generation of american citizens can neither expect to be able to produce literature of its own nor to appreciate or enjoy literature that has been produced it means that another eighteenth century is coming to the world and as the analysis is deeper than before and more deadly clever with the deeper things than before it is going to be the longest eighteenth century the world has ever seen generations with machines for hands and feet machines for minds machines outside their minds to enjoy the machines inside their minds with every man with his information machine to be cultured with his religious machine to be good with and his private analysis machine to be beautiful with shall take his place in the world shall add his soul to the machine we make a world with for every man that is born on the earth one more joy shall be crowded out of it one more analysis of joy shall take its place go round and round under the stars dew dawn and darkness until it stops how a sunrise is made and why a cloud is artistic and how pines should be composed in a landscape all men shall know we shall criticize the technique of thunderstorms and what is a sunset after all the reflection of a large body on a rarefied air through analyzed heaven and over-analyzed fields it trails its joylessness around the earth time was when the setting of the sun was the playing of two worlds upon a human being's life on the edge of the little day the blending of sense and spirit for him earth and heaven out in the still west his whole being went forth to it he watched with it and prayed and sang with it in its presence his soul walked down to the stars out of the joy of his life the finite sorrow and the struggle of his life he gazed upon it it was the portrait of his infinite self every setting sun that came to him was a compact with eternal joy the night itself his figure faint before it in the flicker of the east whispered to him thou also hills and heavens around thee hills and heavens within thee o child of time thou also art god 
ah me how i could love my soul doth melt cries keats ye deaf and senseless minutes of the day and thou old forest hold ye this for true there is no lightning no authentic dew but in the eye of love there is not a sound melodious howsoever can confound the heavens and the earth to such a death as doth the voice of love there is not a breath that will mingle kindly with the meadow air till it has painted round and stolen a share of passion from the heart john keats and william shakespeare wrote masterpieces because they had passions spiritual experiences and the daily habit of inspiration in so far as these masterpieces are being truthfully taught they are taught by teachers who themselves know the passion of creation they teach john keats and william shakespeare by rousing the same passions and experiences in the pupil that keats and shakespeare had and by daily appealing to them analysis analyzed there are a great many men in the world today faithfully doing their stint in it they are commonly known as men of talent who would have been men of genius if they had dared education has made cowards of us all and the habit of examining the roots of one's instincts before they come up is an incurable habit the essential principle in a true work of art is always the poem or the song that is hidden in it a work of art by a man of talent is generally ranked by the fact that it is the work of a man who analyzes a song before he sings it he puts down the words of the song first writes it that is in prose then he lumbers it over into poetry then he looks around for some music for it then he practices at singing it and then he sings it the man of genius on the other hand whether he be a great one or a very little one is known by the fact that he has a song sent to him he sings it he has a habit of humming it over afterwards his humming it over afterwards is his analysis it is the only possible inspired analysis the difference between these two types of men is so great that anything that the smaller of them has to say about the spirit or the processes of the other is of little value when one of them tries to teach the work of the other which is what almost always occurs the man of talent being the typical professor of works of genius the result is fatal the singer who is so little capable of singing that he can give a prose analysis of his own song while it is coming to him and before he sings it can hardly be expected to extemporize an inspired analysis of another man's song after reading it if a man cannot apply inspired analysis to a little common passion in a song he has of his own he is placed in a hopeless position when he tries to give an inspired analysis of a passion that only another man could have and that only a great man would forget himself long enough to have an inspired analysis may be defined as the kind of analysis that the real poet in his creatively critical mood is able to give to his work a low singing or humming analysis in which all the elements of the song are active and all the faculties and all the senses work on the subject at once the proportions and relations of a living thing are all kept perfect in an inspired analysis and the song is made perfect at last not by being taken apart but by being made to pass its delight more deeply and more slowly through the singer's utmost self to its fulfillment 
what is ordinarily taught as analysis is very different from this it consists in the deliberate and triumphant separation of the faculties from one another and from the thing they have produced the dull bare pitiless process of passing a living and beautiful thing before one vacant staring faculty at a time this faculty being left in the stupor of being all by itself sits in complacent judgment upon a work of art the very essence of the life and beauty of which is its appealing to all of the faculties and senses at once in their true proportion glowing them together into a unit namely several things made into one thing that is several things occupying the same time and the same place that is synthesis an inspired analysis is the rehearsal of a synthesis an analysis is not inspired unless it comes as a flash of light and a burst of music and a breath of fragrance all in one such an analysis cannot be secured with painstaking and slowness unless the painstaking and slowness are the rehearsal of a synthesis and all the elements in it are labored on and delighted in at once it must be a low singing or humming analysis the expert student or teacher of poetry who makes a dispassionate criticism of a passion who makes it his special boast that he is able to apply his intellect severely by itself to a great poem boasts of the devastation of the highest power a human being can attain the commonest man that lives whatever his powers may be if they are powers that act together can look down on a man whose powers cannot as a mutilated being while it cannot be denied that a being who has been thus especially mutilated is often possessed of a certain literary ability he belongs to the acrobats of literature rather than to the literature itself the contortionist who separates himself from his hands and feet for the delectation of audiences the circus performer who makes a battering ram of his head and who glories in being shot out of a cannon into space and amazement goes through his motions with essentially the same pride in his strength and sustains the same relation to the strength of the real man of the world whatever a course of literary criticism may be or its value may be to the pupils who take it it consists more often than not on the part of pupil and teacher both in the dislocating of one faculty from all the others and bearing it down hard on a work of art as if what it was made of or how it was made could only be seen by scratching it it is to be expected now and then in the hurry of the outside world that a newspaper critic will be found writing a cerebellum criticism of a work of the imagination but the student of literature in the comparative quiet and leisure of the college atmosphere who works in the same separated spirit who estimates a work by dislocating his faculties on it is infinitely more blameworthy and the college teacher who teaches a work of genius by causing it to file before one of his faculties at a time when all of them would not be enough who does this in the presence of young persons and trains them to do it themselves is a public menace the attempt to master a masterpiece as it were by reading it first with the sense of sight and then with the sense of smell and with all the senses in turn keeping them carefully guarded from their habit of sensing things together is not only a self-destructive but a hopeless attempt even if it would attempt to master anything in this way would find it hopeless 
and the attempt to learn a great work of art a great whole by applying the small parts of a small mind to it one after the other is more hopeless still it can be put down as a general principle that a human being is so little alive that he finds his main pleasure in life in taking himself apart can find little of value for others in a masterpiece a work of art which is so much alive that it cannot be taken apart and which is eternal because its secret is eternally its own if the time ever comes when it can be taken apart it will be done only by a man who could have put it together who is more alive than the masterpiece is alive until the masterpiece meets with a master who is more creative than its first master was the less the emotions of analysis are gone through with by those who are not masters the better a masterpiece cannot be analyzed by the cold and negative process of being taken apart it can only be analyzed by being melted down it can only be melted down by a man who has creative heat in him to melt it down and the daily habit of glowing with creative heat it is a matter of common observation that the fewer resources an artist has the more things there are in nature and in the nature of life which he thinks are not beautiful the making of an artist is his sense of selection if he is an artist of the smaller type he selects beautiful subjects subjects with ready-made beauty in them if he is an artist of the larger type he can hardly miss making almost any subject beautiful because he has so many beautiful things to put it with he sees every subject the way it is that is in relation to a great many other subjects the way god saw it when he made it and the way it is the essential difference between a small mood and a large one is that in the small one we see each thing we look on comparatively by itself or with reference to one or two relations to persons and events in our larger mood we see it less analytically we see it as it is and as it lives and as a god would see it playing its meaning through the whole created scheme into everything else the soul of beauty is synthesis in the presence of a mountain the sound of a hammer is as rich as a symphony it is like the little word of a great man great in its great relations when the spirit is waked and the man within the man is listening to it the sound of a hoof on a lonely road in the great woods is the footstep of cities to him coming through the trees and the low chocking sound of a cartwheel in the still and radiant valley throngs his being like an opera all sights and echoes and thoughts and feelings revel in it it is music for the smoke wrapped and beautiful rising from the chimneys at his feet a sheet of water making heaven out of nothing is beautiful to the dullest man because he cannot analyze it could not even if he would contrive to see it by itself skies come crowding on it there is enough poetry in the mere angle of a sinking sun to flood the prose of a continent with because the gentle earth-long shadows that follow it lay their fingers upon all life and creep together innumerable separated things in the meadow where our birds are there is scarcely a tree in sight to tangle the singing in it is a meadow with miles of sunlight in it it seems like a kind of world melody to walk in the height of noon there infinite grass infinite sky gusts of bobolinks voices it's as if the air that drifted down made music of itself and the song of all the singing everywhere 
the song the soul hears comes on the slow winds half the delight of a bobolink is that he is more synthetic more of a poet than other birds has a duet in his throat he bursts from the grass and sings in bursts plays his own obligato while he goes one can never see him in his eager flurry between his low heaven and his low nest without catching the lilt of inspiration like the true poet he suits the action to the word in a weary world and does his flying and singing together the song that he throws around him is the very spirit of his wings of all wings more beauty is always the putting of more things together they were created to be together the spirit of art is the spirit that finds this out even the bobolink is cosmic if he sings with room enough and when the heart wakes the song of the cricket is infinite we hear it across stars end of section eight section nine of the lost art of reading by gerald stanley lee this librivox recording is in the public domain the sixth interference literary drill in college seeds and blossoms four men stood before god at the end of the first week watching him whirl his little globe the first man said to him tell me how you did it the second man said let me have it the third man said what is it for the fourth man said nothing and fell down and worshipped having worshipped he rose to his feet and made a world himself these four men have been known in history as the scientist the man of affairs the philosopher and the artist they stand for the four necessary points of view in reading books most of the readers of the world are content to be partitioned off and having been duly set down for life in one or the other of these four divisions of human nature they take sides from beginning to end with one or the other of these four men it is the distinction of the scholar of the highest class in every period that he declines to do this in so far as he finds each of the four men taking sides against each other he takes sides against each of them in behalf of all he insists on being able to absorb knowledge to read and write in all four ways if he is a man of genius as well as a scholar he insists on being able to read and write as a rule in all four ways at once if his genius is of the lesser kind in two or three ways at once the eternal books are those that stand this foresighted test they are written from all of these points of view they have absorbed into themselves the four moods of creation morning it is thus that they bring the morning back to us the most important question in regard to books that our schools and institutions of learning are obliged to face at present is how shall we produce conditions that will enable the ordinary man to keep the proportions that belong to a man to absorb knowledge to do his reading and writing in all four ways at once in other words how shall we enable him to be a natural man a man of genius as far as he goes a masterpiece is a book that can only be read by a man who is a master in some degree of the things the book is master of the man who has mastered things the most is the man who can make those things the man who makes the things is the artist he has bowed down and worshipped and he has arisen and stood before god and created before him and the spirit of the creator is in him to take the artist's point of view is to take the point of view that absorbs and sums up the others the supremacy and comprehensiveness of this point of view is a matter of fact rather than argument 
the artist is the man who makes the things that science and practical affairs and philosophy are merely about the artist of the higher order is more scientific than the scientist more practical than the man of affairs and more philosophic than the philosopher because he combines what these men do about things and what these men say about things into the things themselves and makes the things live to combine these four moods at once in one's attitude toward an idea is to take the artist's that is the creative point of view toward it the only fundamental outfit a man can have for reading books in all four ways at once is his ability to take the point of view of the man who made the book in all four ways at once and feel the way he felt when he made it the organs that appreciate literature are the organs that made it true reading is latent writing the more one feels like writing a book when he reads it the more alive his reading is and the more alive the book is the measure of culture is its originating and reproductive capacity the amount of seed and blossom there is in it the amount it can afford to throw away and secure divine results unless the culture in books we are taking such national pains to acquire in the present generation can be said to have this pollen quality in it unless it is contagious can be summed up in its pollen and transmitted unless it is nothing more or less than life itself made catching unless like all else that is allowed to have rights in nature it has powers also has an almost infinite power of self-multiplication self-perpetuation the more cultured we are the more emasculated we are the vegetables of the earth and the flowers of the field the very codfish of the sea become our superiors what is more to the point in the minds and interests of all living human beings their culture crowds ours out nature may be somewhat coarse and simple-minded and naive but reproduction is her main point and she never misses it her prejudice against dead things is immutable if a man objects to this prejudice against dead things his only way of making himself count is to die nature uses such men over again makes them into something more worthwhile something terribly or beautifully alive and goes on her way if this principle namely that the reproductive power of culture is the measure of its value were as fully introduced and recognized in the world of books as it is in the world of commerce and in the natural world it would revolutionize from top to bottom and from entrance examination to diploma the entire course of study policy and spirit of most of our educational institutions allowing for exceptions in every faculty memorable to all of us who have been college students it would require a new corps of teachers entrance examinations for pupils and teachers alike would determine two points first what does this person know about things second what is the condition of his organs what can he do with them if the privilege of being a pupil in the standard college were conditioned upon the second of these questions the condition of his organs as well as upon the first fifty out of a hundred pupils as prepared at present would fall short of admission if the same test were applied for admission to the faculty ninety out of a hundred teachers would fall short of admission having had analytic self-destructive learned habits for a longer time than their pupils the condition of their organs is more hopeless the man who has the greatest joy in a symphony is first the man who composes it second the conductor third the performers fourth those who might be composers of such music themselves fifth those in the audience who have been performers sixth those who are going to be seventh those who are composers of such music for other instruments eighth 
those who are composers of music and other arts literature painting sculpture and architecture ninth those who are performers of music on other instruments tenth those who are performers of music in other arts eleventh those who are creators of music with their own lives twelfth those who perform and interpret in their own lives the music they hear in other lives thirteenth those who create anything whatever and who love perfection in it fourteenth the public fifteenth the professional critic almost inevitably at the fifteenth remove from the heart of things because he is the least creative unless he is a man of genius or has pluck and talent enough to work his way through the other fourteen moods and sum them up before he ventures to criticize the principles that have been employed in putting life into literature must be employed on drawing life out of it these principles are the creative principles principles of joy all influences in education family training and a man's life that tend to overawe crowd out and make impossible his own private personal daily habit of creative joy are enemies of books private road dangerous the impotence of the study of literature as practiced in the schools and colleges of the present day turns largely on the fact that the principle of creative joy of knowing through creative joy is overlooked the field of vision is the book and not the world in the average course in literature the field is not even the book it is still farther from the creative point of view it is the book about the book it is written generally in the laborious unreadable well-read style the book about the book you are as one when you are in the book about the book thrust into the shadow of the endless aisles of other books not that they are referred to baldly or vulgarly or in the text it is worse than this for this could be skipped but you are surrounded helplessly invisible lexicons are on every page grammars and rhetorics piled up in paragraphs and between the lines thrust at you everywhere hardly a chapter that does not convey its sense of struggling faithfulness of infinite forlorn and empty plodding and all for something a man might have known anyway i have toted a thousand books each chapter seems to say this one paragraph page nineteen ninety three you feel it in the paragraph has had to have forty-seven books carried to it not once except in loopholes in his reading which come now and then does the face of the man's soul peep forth one does not expect to meet any one in the book about the book not oneself not even the man who writes it nor the man who writes the book that the book is about one is confronted with a mob two things are apt to be true of students who study the great masters in courses employing the book about the book even if the books about the book are what they ought to be the pupils of such courses find that one studying the master instead of the things he mastered they lose all power over the things he mastered two they lose consequently not only the power of creating masterpieces out of these things themselves but the power of enjoying those that have been created by others of having the daily experiences that make such joy possible they are out of range of experience they are barricaded against a life inasmuch as the creators of literature without a single exception have been more interested in life than in books and have written books to help other people to be more interested in life than in books this is the gravest possible effect to be more interested in life than in books is the first essential for creating a book or for understanding one the typical course of study now offered in literature carries on its process of paralysis in various ways first it undermines the imagination by giving it paper things instead of real ones to work on 
second by seeing that these things are selected instead of letting the imagination select its own things the essence of having an imagination third by requiring of the student a rigorous and ceaselessly unimaginative habit the paralysis of the learned is forced upon him he finds little escape from the constant reading of books that have all the imagination left out of them fourth by forcing the imagination to work so hard in its capacity of pack-horse and memory that it has no power left to go anywhere of itself fifth by overawing individual initiative undermining personality in the pupil crowding great classics into him instead of attracting little ones out of him attracting little classics out of a man is a thing that great classics are always intended to do the thing that they always succeed in doing when left to themselves sixth the teacher of literature so-called having succeeded in destroying the personality of the pupil puts himself in front of the personality of the author seventh a teacher who destroys personality in a pupil is the wrong personality to put in front of an author if he were the right one if he had the spirit of the author his being in front now and then at least would be interpretation and inspiration not having the spirit of the author he is intimidated by him or has all he can do not to be a classic cannot reveal itself to a groveller or to a critic it is a book that was written standing up and it can only be studied and taught by those who stand up without knowing it the decorous and beautiful despising of oneself that the study of the classics has come to be as conducted under unclassic teachers is a fact that speaks for itself eighth even if the personality of the teacher of literature is so fortunate as not to be the wrong one there is not enough of it there is hardly a course of literature that can be found in a college catalogue at the present time that does not base itself on the dictum that a great book can somehow by some mysterious process be taught by a small person the axiom that necessarily undermines all such courses is obvious enough a great book cannot be taught except by a teacher who is literally living in a great spirit the spirit the great book lived in before it became a book a teacher who has the great book in him not over him who if he took time for it might be capable of writing in some sense at least a great book himself when the teacher is a teacher of this kind teaches the spirit of what he teaches that is teaches the inside a classic can be taught otherwise the best course in literature that can be devised is the one that gives the masterpieces the most opportunity to teach themselves the object of a course in literature is best served in proportion as the course is arranged and all associated studies are arranged in such a way as to secure sensitive and contagious conditions for the pupil's mind in the presence of the great masters such conditions as give the pupil time freedom space and atmosphere the things out of which a masterpiece is written and with which alone it can be taught or can teach itself all that comes between a masterpiece and its thus teaching itself spreads ruin both ways the masterpiece is partitioned off from the pupil guarded to be kept aloof from him outside of him the pupil is locked up from himself his possible self not too much stress could possibly be laid upon intimacy with the great books or on the constant habit of living with them they are the movable olympus all who create camp out between the heavens and the earth on them and breathe and live and climb upon them from their mighty sides they look down on human life but classics can only be taught by classics 
the creative paralysis of pupils who have drudged most deeply in classical training english or otherwise is a fact that no observer of college life can overlook the guilt for this state of affairs must be laid at the door of the classics or at the door of the teachers either the classics are not worth teaching or they are not being taught properly in either case the best way out of the difficulty would seem to be for teachers to let the classics teach themselves to furnish the students with the atmosphere the conditions the point of view in life which will give the classics a chance to teach themselves this brings us to the important fact that teachers of literature do not wish to create the atmosphere the conditions and points of view that give the classics a chance to teach themselves creating the atmosphere for a classic in the life of a student is harder than creating a classic the more obvious and practicable course is to teach the classic teach it oneself whether there is atmosphere or not it is admitted that this is not the ideal way to do with college students who suppose they are studying literature but it is contended college students and college electives being what they are that there is nothing else to do the situation sums itself up in the attitude of self-defense it may be as no one needs to point out that the teaching of literature as at present conducted in college is a somewhat faithful and dogged farce but whatever may be the faults of modern college teaching and literature it is as good as our pupils deserve in other words the teachers are not respecting their pupils it may be said that the constitution and bylaws of the literature class as generally conducted that the teachers cannot and must not respect their pupils they cannot afford to it costs more than most pupils are mentally worth it is plausibly contended to furnish students in college with the conditions of life and the conditions in their own minds that will give masterpieces a fair chance at them ergo inasmuch as the average pupil cannot be taught a classic he must be choked with it the fact that the typical teacher of literature is more or less grudgingly engaged in doing his work and conducting his classes under the practical working theory that his pupils are not good enough for him suggests two important principles first if his pupils are good enough for him they are good enough to be taught the best there is in him and they must be taught this best there is in him as far as it goes whether all of them are good enough for it or not there is as much learning in watching others being educated as there is in appearing to be educated oneself second if his pupils are not good enough for him the most literary thing he can do with them is to make them good enough if he is not a sufficiently literary teacher to divine the central ganglion of interest in a pupil and play upon it and gather delight about it and make it gather delight itself the next most literary thing he can do is protect both the books and the pupil by keeping them faithfully apart until they are ready for one another if the teacher cannot recognize arouse and exercise such organs as his pupil has and carry them out into themselves and free them in self-activity the pupil may be unfortunate in not having a better teacher but he is fortunate in having no better organs to be blundered on the drawing out of a pupil's first faint but honest and lasting power of really reading a book of knowing what it is to be sensitive to a book does not produce a very literary looking result of course and it is hard to give the result an impressive or learned look in a catalogue and it is a difficult thing to do without considering each pupil as a special human being by himself worthy of some attention on that account but it is the one upright worthy and beautiful thing a teacher can do any easier course he may choose to adopt in an 
institution of learning even when it is taken helplessly or thoughtlessly as it generally is is insincere and spectacular a despising not only of the pupil but of the college public and of oneself if it is true that the right study of literature consists in exercising and opening out the human mind instead of making it a place for cold storage it is not necessary to call attention to the essential pretentiousness and shoddiness of the average college course in literature at its best that is if the pupils do not do the work the study of literature in college is a sorry spectacle enough a kind of huge girls school with a chaperone taking its park walk at its worst that is when the pupils do do the work it is a sight that would break a homer's heart if it were not for a few inspired and inconsistent teachers blessing particular schools and scholars here and there doing a little guilty furtive teaching whether or no discovering shortcuts climbing fences breaking through the fields and walking on the grass the whole modern scheme of elaborate tireless endless laboriousness would come to nothing except the sight of larger piles of paper in the world perhaps and rows of dreary dogged people with degrees lugging them back and forth in it one pile of paper to another pile of paper and a general sense that something is being done in the meantime human life around us trudging along in its anger sorrow or bliss wonders what this thing is that is being done and has a vague and troubled respect for it but it is to be noted that it buys and reads the books and that it has always bought and read the books of those who have not done it and who are not doing it those who standing in the spectacle of the universe have been sensitive to it have had a mighty love in it or a mighty hate or a true experience and who have laughed and cried with it through the hearts of their brothers to the ends of the earth the organs of literature the literary problem the problem of possessing or appreciating or teaching a literary style resolves itself at last into a pure problem of personality a pupil who is being trained in literature in proportion as his spiritual and physical powers are being brought out by the teacher and played upon until they permeate each other in all that he does and in all that he is in all phases of his life unless what a pupil is glows to the fingertips of his words he cannot write and unless what he is makes the words of other men glow when he reads he cannot read in proportion as it is great literature is addressed to all of a man's body and to all of his soul it matters nothing how much a man may know about books unless the pages of them play upon his senses while he reads he is not physically a cultivated man a gentleman or scholar with his body unless books play upon all his spiritual and mental sensibilities when he reads he cannot be considered a cultivated man a gentleman and a scholar in his soul it is the essence of all great literature that it makes its direct appeal to sense perceptions permeated with spiritual suggestion there is no such thing possible as being a literary authority a cultured or scholarly man unless the permeating of the sense perceptions with spiritual suggestion is a daily and unconscious habit of life every man his own poet is the underlying assumption of every genuine work of art and a work of art cannot be taught to a pupil in any other way than by making the same pupil a poet by getting him to discover himself continued and unfaltering disaster is all that can be expected of all methods of literary training that do not recognize this to teach a pupil all that can be known about a great poem is to take the poetry out of him and to make the poem prose to him forever 
a pupil cannot even be taught great prose except by making a poet of him in his attitude toward it and by so governing the conditions excitements duties and habits of his course of study that he will discover he is a poet in spite of himself the essence of walter pater's essays cannot be taught to a pupil except by making a new creature of him in the presence of the things the essays are about unless the conditions of a pupil's course are so governed in college or otherwise as to ensure and develop the delicate and strong response of all his bodily senses at the time of his life when nature decrees that his senses must be developed that the spirit must be waked in them or not at all the study of walter pater will be in vain the physical organization the mere bodily state of the pupil necessary to appreciate either the form or the substance of a bit of writing like the child in the house is the first thing a true teacher is concerned with a college graduate whose nostrils have not been trained for years steeped in the great still delights of the ground who has not learned the spirit and fragrance of the soil beneath his feet is not a sufficiently cultivated person to pronounce judgment either upon walter pater's style or upon his definition of style to be educated in the great literatures of the world is to be trained in the drawing out in one's own body and mind of the physical and mental powers of those who write great literatures culture is the feeling of the induced current the thrill of the lives of the dead the charging the nerves of the body and powers of the spirit with the genius that has walked the earth before us in the borrowed glories of the great one swift and passing page we walk before heaven with them breathe the long breath of the centuries with them know the joy of the gods and live the man of genius is the man who literally gives himself he makes every man a man of genius for the time being he exchanges souls with us and for one brief moment we are great we are beautiful we are immortal we are visited with our possible selves literature is the transfiguring of the senses in which men are dwelling every day and of the thoughts of the mind in which they are living every day it is the commingling of one's life in one vast network of sensibility communion and eternal comradeship with all the joy and sorrow taste order and sound passion of men and love of women and worship of god that ever has been on the earth since the watching of the first night above the earth or since the look of the first morning on it when it was loved for the first time by a human life the artist is recognized as an artist in proportion as the senses of his body drift their glow and splendor over into the creations of his mind he is an artist because his flesh is informed with the spirit because in whatever he does he incarnates the spirit and the flesh the gentle stroking delight in this universe that dr holmes took all his days his contagious gladness in it and approval of it his impressionableness to its moods its oliver wendell ones who really denies in his soul that this capacity of dr holmes to enjoy this delicate ceaseless tasting with sense and spirit of the essence of life was the very substance of his culture the books that he wrote and the things that he knew were merely the form of it his power of expression was the blending of sense and spirit in him and because his mind was trained into the texture of his body people delighted in his words in form and spirit both there is no training in the art of expression or study of those who know how to express it that shall not consist not in a pupil's knowing wherein the power of a book lies but in his experiencing the power himself in his entering the life behind the book and the habit of life that made writing such a book and reading it possible this habit is the habit of incarnation 
a true and classic book is always the history some human soul has had in its tent of flesh camped out beneath the stars groping for the thing they shine to us trying to find a body for it in the great wide plain of wonder there they sing the wonder a little time to us if we listen then they pass on to it literature is but the faint echo tangled in thousands of years of this mighty lonely singing of theirs under the dome of life in the presence of the things that books are about the power to read a great book is the power to glory in these things and to use that glory every day to do one's living and reading with knowing what is in the book may be called learning but the test of culture always is that it will not be content with knowledge unless it is inward knowledge inward knowledge is the knowledge that comes to us from behind the book from living for weeks with the author until his habits have become our habits until god himself through days and nights and deeds and dreams has blended our souls together End of section nine section ten of the lost art of reading by gerald stanley lee this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Entrance Examinations in Joy If entrance examinations in joy were required at our representative colleges, very few of the pupils who are prepared for college in the ordinary way would be admitted. What is more serious than this, the honor pupils in the colleges themselves at commencement time, those who have submitted most fully to the college requirements, would take a lower stand in a final examination in joy whether of sense or spirit than any others in the class their education has not consisted in the acquiring of a state of being a condition of organs a capacity of tasting life of creating and sharing the joys and meanings in it their learning has largely consisted in the fact that they have learned at last to let their joys go they have become the most satisfactory of scholars not because of their power of knowing but because of their willingness to be powerless in knowing when they have been drilled to know without joy have become the day laborers of learning they are given diplomas for cheerlessness and are sent forth into the world as teachers of the young almost any morning in almost any town or city beneath the sun you can see them gentle reader with the children spreading their tired minds and their tired bodies over all the fresh and buoyant knowledge of the earth knowledge that has not been throbbed in cannot be throbbed out the graduates of the colleges for women in the association of collegiate alumni have seriously discussed the question whether the college course in literature made them nearer or farther from creating literature themselves the editor of harper's monthly has recorded that the spontaneity and freedom of subjective construction in certain american authors was only made possible probably by their having escaped an early academic training the century magazine has been so struck with the fact that hardly a single writer of original power before the public has been a regular college graduate that it has offered special prizes and inducements for any form of creative literature poem story or essay that a college graduate could write if a teacher of literature desires to remove his subject from the uncreative methods he finds in use around him he can only do so successfully by persuading trustees and college presidents that literature is an art and that it can only be taught through the methods and spirit and conditions that belong to art if he succeeds in persuading trustees and presidents 
he will probably find that faculties are not persuaded and that in the typical germanized institution of learning at least any work he may choose to do in the spirit and method of joy will be looked upon by the larger part of his fellow-teachers as superficial and pleasant those who do not feel that it is superficial and pleasant who grant that working for a state of being is the most profound and worthy and strenuous work a teacher can do that it is what education is for will feel that it is impracticable it is thus that it has come to pass in the average institution of learning that if a teacher does not know what education is he regards education as superficial and if he does know what education is he regards education as impossible it is not intended to be dogmatic but it may be worth while to state from the pupil's point of view and from memory what kind of teacher a college student who is really interested in literature would like to have given a teacher of literature who has carte blanche from the other teachers the authorities around him and from the trustees the authorities over him what kind of a stand will he find it best to take if he proposes to give his pupils an actual knowledge of literature in the first place he will stand on the general principle that if a pupil is to have an actual knowledge of literature as literature he must experience literature as an art in the second place if he is to teach literature to his pupils as an art to be mastered he will begin his teaching as a master instead of his pupils determining that they will elect him he will elect them if there is to be any candidating he will see that the candidating is properly placed that the privilege at least of the first-class music master dancing master and teacher of painting the choosing of his own pupils is accorded to him inasmuch as the power and value of his class must always depend upon him he will not allow either the size or the character of his classes to be determined by a catalogue or by the examinations of other persons or by the advertising facilities of the college if actual results are to be achieved in his pupils it can only be by his governing the conditions of their work and by keeping these conditions at all times in his own hands in the third place he will see that his class is so conducted that out of a hundred who desire to belong to it the best ten only will be able to in the fourth place he will himself not only determine which are the best ten but he will make this determination on the one basis possible for a teacher of art the basis of mutual attraction among the pupils he will take his stand on the spiritual principle that if classes are to be vital classes it is not enough that the pupils should elect the teacher but the teacher and pupils must elect each other the basis of an art is the mutual attraction that exists between things that belong together the basis for transmitting an art to other persons is the natural attraction that exists between persons that belong together the more mutual the attraction is complementary or otherwise the more condensed and powerful teaching can it be made the conductor of if a hundred candidates offer themselves fifty will be rejected because the attraction is not mutual enough to ensure swift and permanent results out of fifty forty will be rejected probably for the sake of ten with whom the mutual attraction is so great that great things cannot help being accomplished by it 
the thorough and contagious teacher of literature will hold his power the power of conveying the current and mood of art to others as a public trust he owes it to the institution in which he is placed to refuse to surround himself with non-conductors and inasmuch as his power such as it is is instinctive power it will be placed where it instinctively counts the most in proportion as he loves his art and loves his kind and desires to get them on speaking terms with each other he will devote himself to selected pupils to those with whom he will throw the least away his service to others will be to give to these such real inspired and reproductive knowledge that it shall pass on from them to others of its own inherent energy from the narrower that is the less spiritual point of view it has seemed perhaps a selfish and aristocratic thing for a teacher to make distinctions in persons in the conduct of his work but from the point of view of the progress of the world it is heartless and sentimental to do otherwise and without exception all of the most successful teachers in all of the arts have been successful quite as much through a kind of dictatorial insight in selecting the pupils they could teach as in selecting the things they could teach them in the fifth place having determined to choose his pupils himself the selection will be determined by processes of his own choosing these processes whatever form or lack of form they may take will serve to convey to the teacher the main knowledge he desires they will be an examination in the capacity of joy in the pupil inasmuch as surplus joy in a pupil is the most promising thing he can have the sole secret of any ability he may ever attain of learning literature the basis of all discipline it will be the first thing the teacher takes into account while it is obvious that an examination in joy could not be conducted in any set fashion every great joy in the world has its natural diviners and experts and teachers of literature who know its joy have plenty of ways of divining this joy in others in the sixth place pupils will be dropped and promoted by a teacher in such a class as has been described according to the spirit and force and creativeness of their daily work promotion will be by elimination that is the pupil will stay where he is and the class will be made smaller for him the superior natural force of each pupil will have full sway in determining his share of the teacher's force as this force belongs most to those who waste it least if five-tenths of the appreciation in a class belongs to one pupil five-tenths of the teacher belongs to him and promotion is most truly effected not by giving the best pupils a new teacher but by giving them more of the old one a teacher's work can only be successful in proportion as it is accurately individual and puts each pupil in the place he was made to fit in the seventh place the select class will be selected by the teacher as a baseball captain selects his team not as being the nine best men but as being the nine men who most call each other out and make the best play together if the teacher selects his class wisely the principle of his selection sometimes from the outside at least will seem no principle at all the class must have its fool for instance and pupils must be selected for useful defects as well as for virtues belonging to such a class will not be allowed to have a stiff definite water meter meaning in it with regard to the capacity of a pupil 
it will only be known that he is placed in the class for some quality fault or inspiration in him that can be brought to bear on the state of being in the class in such a way as to produce results not only for himself but for all concerned natural selection in theory the conditions just stated as necessary for the vital teaching of literature narrow themselves down for the most part to the very simple and common principle of life and art the principle of natural selection as an item in current philosophy the principle of natural selection meets with general acceptance it is one of those pleasant and instructive doctrines which when applied to existing institutions is opposed to at once as a sensational visionary and revolutionary doctrine there are two most powerful objections to the doctrine of natural selection in education one of these is the scholastic objection and the other is the religious one the scholastic objection is that natural selection in education is impracticable it cannot be made to operate mechanically or for large numbers and it interferes with nearly all of the educational machinery for hammering heads in rows which we have at command at present even if the machinery could be stopped and natural selection could be given the place that belongs to it all success in acting on it would call for handmade teachers and handmade teachers are not being produced when we have nothing but machines to produce them with the scholastic objection that natural selection in education is impracticable under existing conditions is obviously well taken as it cannot be answered it had best be taken perhaps as a recommendation the religious objection to natural selection in education is not that it is impracticable but that it is wicked it rests its case on the defense of the weak but the question at issue is not whether the weak shall be served and defended or whether they shall not we all would serve and defend the weak if a teacher feels that he can serve his inferior pupils best by making his superior pupils inferior too it is probable that he had better do it and that he will know how to do it and that he will know how to do it better than anyone else there are many teachers however who have the instinctive belief and who act on it so far as they are allowed to that to take the stand that the inferior pupil must be defended at the expense of the superior pupil is to take a sentimental stand it is not a stand in favor of the inferior pupil but against him the best way to respect an inferior pupil is to keep him in place the more he is kept in place the more his powers will be called upon if he is in the place above him he may see much that he would not see otherwise much at which he will wonder perhaps but he deserves to be treated spiritually and thoroughly to be kept where he will be creative where his wondering will be to the point both at once and eventually it is a law that holds as good in the life of a teacher of literature as it does in the lives of makers of literature from the point of view of the world at large the author who can do anything else has no right to write for the average man there are plenty of people who cannot help writing for him let them do it it is their right and the world's right that they should be the ones to do it it is the place that belongs to them and why should nearly every man we have of the more seeing kind today deliberately compete with men who cannot compete with him the man who abandons the life that belongs to him the life that would not exist in the world if he did not live it and keep it existing in the world and who does it to help his inferiors does not help his inferiors 
he becomes their rival he crowds them out of their lives there could not possibly be a more noble or more exact and spiritual law of progress than this that every man should take his place in human society and do his work in it with his nearest spiritual neighbors these nearest spiritual neighbors are a part of the economy of the universe they are now and always have been the natural conductors over the face of the earth of actual power in it it has been through the grouping of the nearest spiritual neighbors around the world that men have unfailingly found the heaven-appointed world remolding teachers of every age it does not sound very much like thomas jefferson and it is to be admitted that there are certain lines in our first great national document which read on the run at least may seem to deny it but the living spirit of thomas jefferson does not teach that amputation is progress nor does true democracy admit either the patriotism or the religion of a man who feels that his legs must be cut off to run to the assistance of neighbors whose legs are cut off an educational democracy which expects a pupil to be less than himself for the benefit of other pupils is a mock democracy and it is the very essence of a democracy of the truer kind that expects every man to be more than himself and if a man's religion is of the truer kind it will not be heard telling him that he owes it to god and the average man to be less than himself natural selection in practice it is not going to be possible very much longer to take it for granted that natural selection is a somewhat absent-minded and heathen habit that god has fallen into in the natural world and uses in his dealings with men but that it is not a good enough law for men to use in their dealings with one another the main thing that science has done in the last fifty years in spite of conventional religion and so-called scholarship has been to bring to pass in men a respect for the natural world the next thing is to be brought to pass also in spite of conventional religion and so-called scholarship is the self-respect of the natural man and of the instincts of human nature the self-respect of the natural man when once he gains it is a thing that is bound to take care of itself and take care of the man and take care of everything that is important to the man inasmuch as in the long run at least education even in times of its not being human interests humanity more than anything else a most important consequence of the self-respect of the natural man is going to be an uprising all over the world of teachers who believe something the most important consequence of having teachers who believe something will be a wholesale and uncompromising rearrangement of nearly all our systems and methods of education instead of being arranged to cow the teacher with routine to keep teachers from being human beings and to keep their pupils from finding it out if they are human beings they will be arranged on the principle that the whole object of knowledge is the being of a human being and the only way to know anything worth knowing in the world is to begin by knowing how to be a human being and by liking it not until our current education is based throughout on expecting great things of human nature instead of secretly despising it can it truly be called education expectancy is the very essence of education actions not only speak louder than words they make words as though they were not and so long as our teachers confine themselves to saying beautiful and literary things about the instincts of the human heart and do not trust their own instincts in their daily teaching and the instincts of their pupils and do not make this trust the foundation of all their work the more they educate the more they destroy 
the destruction is both ways and whatever the subjects are they may choose to know murder and suicide are the branches they teach the chief characteristic of the teacher of the future is going to be that he will dare to believe in himself and that he will divine some one thing to believe in in everybody else and that trusting the laws of human nature he will go to work on this some one thing and work out from it to everything inasmuch as the chief working principle of human nature is the principle of natural selection the entire method of the teacher of the future will be based on his faith in natural selection all such teaching as he attempts to do will be worked out from the temperamental involuntary primitive choices of his own being both in persons and in subject his power with his classes will be his power of divining the free and unconscious and primitive choices of individual pupils in persons and subjects half of the battle is already won the principle of natural selection between pupils and subjects is recognized in the elective system but we have barely commenced to conceive as yet the principle of natural selection in its more important application mutual attraction between teacher and pupil natural selection in its deeper and more powerful and spiritual sense the kind of natural selection that makes the teacher a worker in wonder and education the handiwork of god in most of our great institutions we do not believe in even the theory of this deeper natural selection and if we do believe in it sitting in endowed chairs under the umbrella of endowed ideas how can we act on that belief and if we do who will come out and act with us if it does not seem best for even the single teacher doing his teaching unattached and quite by himself to educate in the open to trust his own soul and the souls of his pupils to the nature of things how much less shall the great institution with its crowds of teachers and its rows of pupils and its vested funds be expected to lay itself open lay its teachers and pupils and its vested funds open to the nature of things we are suspicious of the nature of things god has concealed a lie in them we do not believe therefore we cannot teach the conclusion is inevitable as long as we believe in natural selection between pupil and subject but do not believe in natural selection between pupil and teacher no great results in education or in teaching a vital relation to books or to anything else will be possible as long as natural selection between pupil and teacher is secretly guarded as an irreligious and selfish instinct with which a teacher must have nothing to do instead of a divine ordinance a heaven-appointed starting point for doing everything the average routine teacher in the conventional school and college will continue to be the kind of teacher he is and will continue to belong to what seems to many at least the sentimental and superstitious and pessimistic profession he belongs to now why should a teacher allow himself to teach without inspiration in the one profession on the earth where between the love of god and the love of the opening faces inspiration one would say could hardly be missed certainly if it was ever intended that artists should be in the world it was intended that teachers should be artists and why should we be artisans if we cannot be artists if we are not allowed to make our work a self-expression were it not better to get one's living by the labor of one's hands by digging in the wonder of the ground a stone crusher as long as one works one's will with it makes it say something is nearer to nature than a college i would rather do manual labor with my hands than manual labor with my soul 
the true artist is saying today and a great many thousand teachers are saying it and thousands more who would like to teach the moment that teaching ceases to be a trade and becomes a profession again these thousands are going to crowd into it until the artist teachers have been attracted to teaching things can only continue as they are young men and women who are capable of teaching will continue to do all that they can not to get into it and young men and women who are capable of teaching and who are still trying to teach will continue to do all that they can to get out of it when the schools of america have been obliged like the city of brooklyn to advertise to secure even poor teachers we shall begin to see where we stand stop our machinery a while and look at it the only way out is the return to nature and to faith in the freedom of nature not until the teacher of the young has dared to return to nature has won the emancipation of his own instincts and the emancipation of the instincts of his pupils can we expect anything better than we have now of either of them not until the modern reader has come to the point where he deliberately works with his instincts where he looks upon himself as an artist working in the subject that attracts him most and in the material that is attracted to him most can we expect to secure in our crowded conditions today enough teaching to go around the one practical and economical way to make our limited supply of passion and thought cover the ground is to be spiritual and spontaneous and thorough with what we have the one practical and economical way to do this is to leave things free to let the natural forces of men's lives find the places that belong to them develop the powers that belong to them until power in every man's life shall be contagious of power in the meantime having brought out the true and vital energies of men as far as we go if we are obliged to be specialists in knowledge we shall be specialists of the larger sort the powers of each man being actual and genuine powers shall play into the powers of other men each man that essays to live shall create for us a splendor and beauty and strength he was made to create from the beginning of the world to those who sit in the seat of the scornful the somewhat lyrical idea of an examination in joy as a basis of admission to the typical college appeals as a fit subject of laughter so it is having admitted the laugh the question is all human life is questioning the college to-day which way shall the laugh point if the conditions of the typical college do not allow for the working of the laws of nature so much the worse for the laws of nature or so much the worse for the college in the meantime it is good to record that there are many signs thanks to these same laws of nature that a most powerful reaction is setting in not only in the colleges themselves but in all the forces of culture outside and around them the examination in joy the test of natural selection is already employed by all celebrated music masters the world over in the choosing of pupils and by all capable teachers of painting and the time is not far off when so far as courses in literature are concerned if the teaching of literature is attempted in crowded institutions the examination in joy will be the determining factor with all the best teachers not only in the conduct of their classes but in the very structure of them structure is the basis of conduct the emancipation of the teacher 
the custom of mowing lawns in cities of having every grass blade in every dooryard like every other grass blade is considered by many persons as an artificial custom a violation of the law of nature it is contended that the free-swinging wind-blown grasses of the fields are more beautiful and that they give more various and infinite delight in color and line and movement if a piece of this same field however could be carefully cut out and moved and fitted to a city dooryard bobolinks and daisies and shadows and all precisely as they are it would not be beautiful long grass conforms to a law of nature where nature has room and short grass conforms to a law of nature where nature has not room when for whatever reason of whatever importance men and women choose to be so close together that it is not fitting they should have freedom and when they choose to have so little room to live in that development is not fitting lest it should inconvenience others the penalty follows when grass blades are crowded between walls and fences the more they can be made to look alike the more pleasing they are and when an acre of ground finds itself covered with a thousand people or a teacher of culture finds himself mobbed with pupils the law of nature is the same whenever crowding of any kind takes place whether it be in grass ideas or human nature the most pleasing as well as the most convenient and natural way of producing a beautiful effect is with the lawn mower the dead level is the logic of crowded conditions the city grades down its hills for the convenience of reducing its sewer problem it makes its streets into blocks for the convenience of knowing where every home is and how far it is by a glance at a page and in order that the human beings in it one set of innumerable nobodies hurrying to another set of innumerable nobodies may never be made to turn out perchance for an elm on a sidewalk it cuts down centuries of trees and then out of its modern improvements its map of life its woods in rows its wheels on tracks and its soles in pigeonholes out of its huge checkerboard under the days and nights it lifts its eyes to the smoke in heaven at last and thanks god it is civilized the substantial fact in the case would seem to be that every human being born into the world has a right to be treated as a special creation all by himself society can only be said to be truly civilized in proportion as it acts on this fact it is because in the family each being is treated as one out of six or seven and in the school as one out of six hundred that the family with approximately good parents comes nearer to being a model school than anything we have if we deliberately prefer to live in crowds for the larger part of our lives we must expect our lives to be cut and fitted accordingly it is an aesthetic as well as a practical law that this should be so the law of nature where there is room for a man to be a man is not the law of nature where there is not room for him to be a man if there is no playground for his individual instincts except the street he must give them up inasmuch as natural selection in overcrowded conditions means selecting things by taking them away from others it can neither be beautiful nor useful to practice it people who prefer to be educated in masses must conform to the law of mass which is inertia and to the law of the herd which is the dog as long as our prevailing idea of the best elective is the one with the largest class and the prevailing idea of culture is the degree from the most crowded college all natural gifts whether in teachers or pupils are under a penalty 
if we deliberately place ourselves where everything is done by the gross as a matter of course and in the nature of things the machine-made man taught by the machine-made teacher in a teaching machine will continue to be the typical scholar of the modern world and the gentleman scholar the man who made himself or who gave god a chance to make him will continue to be what he is now in most of our large teaching communities an exception culture which has not the power to win the emancipation of its teachers does not produce emancipated and powerful pupils the essence of culture is selection and the essence of selection is natural selection and teachers who have not been educated with natural selection cannot teach it teachers who have given up being individuals in the main activity of their lives who are not allowed to be individuals in their teaching do not train pupils to be individuals their pupils instead of being organic human beings are manufactured ones literary drill in college consists in drilling every man to be himself in giving him the freedom of himself probably it would be admitted by most of us who are college graduates that the teachers who loom up in our lives are those whom we remember as emancipated teachers men who dared to be individuals in their daily work and who every time they touched us helped us to be individuals the test of culture looking at our great institutions of learning in a general way one might be inclined to feel that literature cannot be taught in them because the classes are too large when one considers however the average class in literature as it actually is and the things that are being taught in it it becomes obvious that the larger such a class can be made and the less the pupil can be made to get out of it the better the best test of a man's knowledge of the spanish language would be to put him in a balloon and set him down in dark night in the middle of spain and leave him there with his spanish words the best test of a man's knowledge of books is to see what he can do without them on a desert island in the sea when the ship's library over the blue horizon dwindles at last in its cloud of smoke and he is left without a shred of printed paper by him the supreme opportunity of education will come to him he will learn how vital and beautiful or boastful and empty his education is if it is true education the first step he takes he will find a use for it the first bird that floats from its treetop shall be a message from london straight to his soul if he has truly known them the spirits of all his books will flock to him if he has known shakespeare the ghost of the great master will rise from beneath its stratford stone and walk oceans to be with him if he knows homer homer is full of odysseys trooping across the seas shall he sit him down on the rocks lift his voice like a mere librarian and like a book-raised paper-pampered ink-hungry babe cry to the surf for a greek dictionary the rhythm of the beach is greece to him and the singing of the great greek voice is on the tops of waves around the world a man's culture is his knowledge become himself it is in the seeing of his eyes and the hearing of his ears and the use of his hands is there not always the altar of the heavens and the earth laying down days and nights of joy before it and of beauty and wonder and peace the scholar is always a scholar i e he is always at home to be cultured is to be so splendidly wrought of body and soul as to get the most joy out of the least and the fewest things wherever he happens to be whatever he happens to be without his culture is his being master 
he may be naked before the universe and it may be a pitiless universe or a gracious one but he is always master knowing how to live in it knowing how to hunger and die in it or like stevenson smiling out of his poor worn body to it he is the unconquerable man wherever he is in the world he cannot be old in the presence of the pageant of life from behind the fading of his face lie watches it child after child spring after spring as it flies before him he will not grow old while it still passes by it carries delight across to him to the end he watches and sings with it to the end down to the edge of sleep a bird's shadow is enough to be happy with if a man is educated or the flicker of light on a leaf and when really a song is being lived in a man all nature plays its accompaniment to possess one's own senses to know how to conduct oneself is to be the conductor of orchestras in the clouds and in the grass the trained man is not dependent on having the thing itself he borrows the boom of the sea to live with it anywhere and the gladness of continents literary training consists in the acquiring of a state of mind and body to feel the universe with in becoming an athlete toward beauty a giver of great lifts of joy to this poor straining stumbling world with its immemorial burden on its back which going round and round for the most part with its eyes shut between infinities is the hope and sorrow of all of us for the very reason that its eyes are shut summary the proper conditions for literary drill in college would seem to sum themselves up in the general idea that literature is the spirit of life it can therefore only be taught through the spirit first it can only be taught through the spirit by being taught as an art through its own nature and activity reproductively giving the spirit body both the subject matter and the method in true literary drill can only be based on the study of human experience the intense study of human experience in a college course may be fairly said to involve three things that must be daily made possible to the pupil in college life everything that is given him to do and everything that happens to him in college should cultivate these three things in the pupil one personality an intense first-person singular as a center for having experience two imagination the natural organ in the human soul for realizing what an experience is and for combining and condensing it three the habit of having time and room for re-experiencing an experience at will in the imagination until the experience becomes so powerful and vivid so fully realizes itself in the mind that the owner of the mind is an artist with his mind when he puts the experience of his mind down it becomes more real to other men on paper than their own experiences are to them in their own lives it is hardly necessary to point out that whatever our conventional courses in literature may be doing whether in college or anywhere else they are not bringing out this creative joy and habit of creative joy in the pupils those who are interested in literature courses such as we have for the most part do not believe in trying to bring out the creative joy of each pupil those who might believe in trying to do it do not believe it can be done they do not believe it can be done because they do not realize that in the case of each and every pupil so far as he goes it is the only thing worth doing they fail to see from behind their commentaries and from out of their footnotes the fact that the one object in studying literature is joy 
that the one way of studying and knowing literature is joy and that the one way to attain joy is to draw out creative joy second and if literature is to be taught as an art it must be taught as a way of life as long as literature and life continue to be conceived and taught as being separate things there can be no wide and beautiful hope for either of them the organs of literature are precisely the same organs and they are trained on precisely the same principles as the organs of life except an education in books can bring to pass the right conditions of these organs a state of being in the pupil his knowledge of no matter how long a list of masterpieces is but a catalogue of the names of things forever left out of his life it is little wonder when the drudgery has done its work and the sorry show is over and the victim of the system is face to face with his empty soul at last if in his earlier years at least he seems over fond to some of us of receiving medals honors valedictories for what he might have been and of flourishing a degree for what he has missed there once was a master of arts who was nuts upon cranberry tarts when he'd eaten his fill he was awfully ill but he was still a master of arts the power and habit of studying and enjoying human nature as it lives around us is not only a more human and alive occupation but it is a more literary one than becoming another editor of aeschylus or going down to posterity in footnotes as one of the most prominent bores that shakespeare ever had if a teacher of literature enjoys being the editor of aeschylus or if he is happier in appearing on a title page with a poet than he could possibly be in being a poet it is personally well enough though it may be a disaster to the rest of us and to aeschylus men who can be said as a class to care more about literature than they do about life who prefer the paper side of things to the real one are at liberty as private persons to be editors and footnote hunters to the top of their bent but why should they call it the study of literature to teach their pupils to be footnote hunters and editors and how can they possibly teach anything else and do they teach anything else and if good teachers can only teach what they have what shall we expect of poor ones in the meantime the manufacture of the cultured mind is going ruthlessly on and thousands of young men and women who left alone with the masters of literature might be engaged in accumulating and multiplying inspiration are engaged in analyzing dividing what inspiration they have and in the one natural creative period of their lives their time is entirely spent in learning how inspired work was done or how it might have been done or how it should have been done in absorbing everything about it except its spirit the power that did it the power that makes being told how to do it uncalled for the power that asks and answers its hows for itself the serene powerlessness of it all without courage or passion or conviction without self-discovery in it or self-forgetfulness or beauty in it or for one moment the great contagion of the great is one of the saddest sights in this modern day in the meantime the most practical thing that can be done with the matter of literary drill in college is to turn the eye of the public on it methods will change when ideals change and ideals will change when the public clearly sees ideals and when the public encourages colleges that see them the time is not far off when it will be admitted by all concerned that the true study of masterpieces consists and always must consist in communing with the things that masterpieces are about 
in the learning and applying of the principles of human nature in a passion for real persons and a daily loving of the face of the universe this idea may not be considered very practical it stands for a kind of education in which it is difficult to exhibit in rose actual results we are not contending for an education that looks practical we are contending merely for education that will be true and beautiful and natural it will be practical the way the forces of nature are practical whether anyone notices it or not the following announcement can already be seen on the bulletin boards of universities around the world if looked for twice they are coming oh shades of learning the lovers of joy imperious joy unconquerable their sails are flocking the east the high seas are theirs they shall command you overwhelm you book lovers paper plotters shall be as though they were not the youth of the earth shall be renewed in the morning the suns and the stars shall be unlocked and the evening shall go forth with joy the mountains shall be freed from the pick and the shovel and the book and lift themselves to heaven flowers shall again outblossom botanies and gymnasts of music shall be laid low and birds through an opera glass shall sing joy shall come to knowledge and the strength of joy upon it they are coming o ye shades of learning a thousand thousand strong their sails flock the sea the smoke and the throb of their engines is the promise of the east the days of thirteen thousand ton three horsepower education are numbered a note it is one of the danger signs of the times that the men who have most closely observed our modern life in its social industrial artistic educational and religious aspects seem to be gradually coming to the point where they all but take it for granted in considering all social industrial and educational and political questions that the conditions of modern times are such and are going to be such that imagination and personality might as well be dropped as practical forces forces that must be reckoned with in the movement of human life nearly all the old-time outlooks of the soul as they stand in history have been taken for factory sites bought up by syndicates moral and otherwise and are being used for chimneys nothing but smoke and steel and wooden things come out of them poets and brokers are both telling us on every hand that imagination is impossible and personality incredible in modern life imagination and personality are the spirit and the dust out of which all great nations and all great religions are made the attempt has been made in the foregoing pages to point out that they are not dead the altar smoulders in pointing out how imagination and personality can be wrought into one single branch of a man's education his relation to books principles may have been suggested which can be concretely applied by all of us each in our own department to the education of the whole man end of section ten